This is VOCM Open Line. Call 709-273-5211 or 1-888-590-8626. The views and opinions of this program are not necessarily those of this station. The biggest conversation in Newfoundland and Labrador starts now. Here's VOCM Open Line host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you so much for tuning into the program. It's Monday, January the 8th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams. He's producing the program. Let's get the week off to a flying start. That requires your participation. So if you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial to get in the queue and on the air, 709-273-5211. Elsewhere, it's toll-free, long-distance 1-888-888. 590 VOCM, which is 86. 26. So, pretty good weekend for the Newfoundland Growlers as they kicked off their first homestand of 2024 at the Mary Brown Center. Had the Utah Grizzly in town for the first time ever. Took two out of three, which included a 6-2 victory yesterday. Yesterday saw Zach O'Brien playing his 600th professional hockey game. So, congratulations to Zach and the Growlers. And our very own Ben Murphy, co-host of the VOCM Morning Show. He made his debut calling the play-by-play in a pro hockey game on Saturday night. He did a bang-up job as well. So, way to go, Ben. That's pretty cool. You're always looking for someone decent to follow on some of the social media sites. I'm going to suggest Terry Hart, friend of mine, former colleague, of course. Terry worked for us here for some 40-plus years. So he tweeted out that basically on a review of some of the best fast-pitch softball players in the world, Sean Clary from this province is ranked the second-best pitcher in the world. So that's pretty cool, and Terry's a great follow on social media, both industry and some sports-related stuff. All right, this is a great story. So, young Sully Hogan. I remember when this happened back on New Year's Day in 2021. He was down for a family skate at the Bannerman Park Loop. He fell down, and someone skated over his hand and severed his pinky at the knuckle. So now, Sully Hogan, a couple of years later, he's a young hockey player at this point, he's going to host a uh, Tim Hortons hockey card trading night fundraiser, all in an effort to bring awareness to ice skating safety and the work done at the war amps. Of course, kids were requiring prosthetics. So, good on you, Sully. So, it's going to take place on Friday, January the 12th from 6 to 8 at the Paradise Double Ice Complex. So there's going to be snacks and drinks and door prizes, a visit from some of the members of the Newfoundland Growlers. So way to go, Sully Hogan. You know, it's not just necessarily about raising uh, money either. You know, when young people see a need, see a cause, I think it really speaks to the fact that so many young people out there are recognizing where they need to bring awareness to certain things. Now, we can all, you know, picture in our minds either War Amps commercials and the promotion of the key tags and what have you, but for a young seven-year-old Sully, Sully Hogan to get involved. All right, so H&L. A real communications fiasco here. And this, of course, is all about the post-game handshake. And it only impacts the boys' side, U11 through U18. All right. So they say they're going to revisit it after the season is over. And they've talked about uh, game officials with discretion for some sort of blue line stick salute. Or, okay. Inside of all of this, though, I knew this was going to happen. Saw many pictures and postings from minor hockey games around the province over the weekend where the kids did indeed shake hands after the game. So I suppose between the parents and the coaches and maybe a conversation between coaches on opposite sides to say, let's do it. I can't imagine anyone's going to bring the hammer down on them. Because talk about a, an already messy communication situation, that would be something else. And I knew it was going to happen. There was going to inevitably be some teams, coaches, parents, and associations that were just going to either turn a blind eye or willfully say, go ahead, shake hands after the game. So I saw a bunch of that over the weekend. And we'll see if there are any repercussions 
coming. All right, so a pretty good dump of snow here on Friday. There will always be debate about the upside, the downside, the erring on the uh, side of safety and caution about closing schools and all the rest of it. So you want to get into it, we can do it. The forecast actually was pretty accurate. They were talking about mid to late afternoon before it really became snowy and stormy. And eventually there was, I don't know, 25, 30 centimeters of snow. And of course, folks on the West Coast, specifically those working on and managing Marble Mountain, are really quite envious of the little bit of snow we got here on the East Coast. So they're unable to open the slopes. And, you know, they're working down the hill to try to ensure that the ditches and the stumps are covered up and hopefully with continued cold weather they can make some snow and hopefully they get a dump of snow. They're actually talking about, you know, potentially even moving away from even talking about opening in January. Now, if the snow comes, they'll open it as soon as it's safe to do so. But they're saying maybe in February the 1st because they can pretty much guarantee hitting that particular target. And, in the, and fingers crossed, hopefully they have a decent season out there. But, of course, when we talk about marble, for me, maybe for many of you, it will be one of those government assets that were supposedly on the block for consideration to be privatized, sold off inside the Green Report, and I would imagine as well inside the so-called super secretive Rothschild Report. You want to take it on? Let's go. All right. So with the bitter cold, and it was freezing cold over the weekend, but it's winter in Newfoundland, right? That's the way it works. And Labrador. So you see people squat down outside the doors, whether it be of grocery stores or otherwise, and it's hard to imagine anyone can walk by and not think, man, oh man, where do people go? If they're not going to avail of emergency shelters for a variety of reasons, the fact that there's people outside during the winter weather is just still mind-numbing to me in modern-day Canada in 2024. So then you look at some of the issues that people have been trying to address, albeit it's amazing to me that we've waited so long to even talk about things like minimum standards, inspection, oversight, enforcement in emergency shelters. They're not all created equal. Some of them are really quite terrible. Some not so much. And of course, you know, there's always unfortunately going to be a need for an emergency shelter. And there's been lots of policy discussions about, you know, creating minimum standards and ensuring that people have a safe place to go if they do indeed not have a home to call their own. All right. Inside that world, there's always going to be focus on Newfoundland Labrador Housing Corporation. Now, there's an $80 million pot of money to build so-called, or what they're calling, affordable units. But the issue that people have brought to bear, and rightfully so, is just how many of the Newfoundland and Labrador Housing Corporation units have been boarded up awaiting for renovations. Now, some renovations might be fairly minor, some might be pretty extensive. So we have an update now coming from the Department of Children, Seniors, and Social Development. They say they are, quote, unquote, quite pleased with the work conducted over the last year. So the minister responsible, Paul Pike, says they've repaired over 300 units in the last fiscal year. Repairs are either underway or completed on over 80% of the 143 identified as needing repairs early last year. All right. There's always going to be floating numbers about the numbers of units that are out of stock. And I'm not suggesting that we hire more and more people to work in the public sector. Of course I'm not. But you wonder what kind of staff are on site anyway, or working for the department, and the rotation of inspection and repairs before they end up needing extensive repairs and shuttered for a long time. So I think there's been a reduction of staff inside the department doing that type of work. It also should be absolutely incumbent on those who are getting a Newfoundland Labrador Housing Corporation unit to be respectful of it, treat it like it's their very own and they have a mortgage at the bank to pay for that roof over their head. So, of course, with the miscommunication and or misspeak and or out-and-out misleading commentary of last year, there's an update on the numbers. And, of course, inside that pot of money to build more and more units, you know, the real trick will be to see if we can't get it right on price point. 
So yes, there's going to be people that are more than able to go to the bank and mortgage a $450,000 home, right? We see the numbers. There's also going to be growing concerns about interest rates and renewals. You know, some 300,000 mortgage holders have renewed since the Bank of Canada began their 10th consecutive rate hike. There's another 3 million that have to be renegotiated in the next 18 to 20 months. So we can take that on. But in the side the world of trying to hit the affordability target. So inside that pot of money, so $80 million, a quarter of it, 19, is going towards the community sector and and community sector and not-for-profits. Try to get into that non-market housing. But here's some of the numbers. So private sector proponents are promising to keep the rent at affordable rate for 20 years as a condition of the funding for 69 housing projects. 14 proponents will keep the apartments affordable for 15 years. Five out of the seven community sector housing projects will be affordable for 30 years and then the remainder for 25 years. Here's how they're going to try to set the rental targets. So the Housing Corp says they'll use the Canada Mortgage and Housing Corporation's annual rental market report. Currently, affordable rent for the privately built housing projects at a range of $665 a month to $880 a month, of course, depending on size of the rental. Community sector projected the range between $585 and $775 per month. Then begs the question, how quickly can anything get, get built? Because we have a long-running, well-understood problem about just how long it takes to get through the permitting process and then add to it with all the other incentives inside the world of skilled trades, whether it be the potential for the wind projects and or potential for Beta Nord and or the potential for Gull Island and the oil to electric heat, all these types of things and all the incentives moving to central heat pumps, all these people, all these incentives and programs and pots of money are utilizing skilled trades people. So... It would be really curious to know if whether or not we've had some sort of deep dive, whether it be at Trades NL or most importantly at the provincial government, because at this moment, there's a skilled trade shortage in the country. So while all of these efforts are trying to be achieved in short order, who builds it? It's a massive question. Who are the people that are going to be able to build these things? Because, for instance, if you have another major project come to bear, and it could be anything, you can pick the wind project or bait in order, whatever it is, just imagine what it's going to mean for the need to build all the units of homes required, not just in this province, but right across the country, because the trades issue is absolutely front and center. So maybe Darren King at Trades and L. And again, as I mentioned, what does the province, what kind of work has the province done to look at skilled trades and how quickly any of these uh, issues can be attended to? In the short term. So, you know, we can have all the affordability targets and using the Mortgage Corporation's affordable rent annual report, but how do we get it built? How quickly can it get done? All right. And on that front, so when you look at things like how much it costs to rent, and absolutely landlords have to be able to keep up with their increased operating expenses because if they are including all the utilities, they're increasing. If their mortgage payments have gone up like everyone else's, if they've had to renegotiate with the new Bank of Canada rates. And then you see provinces like Nova Scotia. So on January 1st, their rent control cap went from 2% annual increase available to 5%. And in this province, we've got a bit of a wild, wild west. I don't know whether or not rent control and vacancy control caps are, should be in place, but I think it's a worthwhile discussion because just look at some of the stories we've heard. For people being evicted, 
And seniors in particular, and some of these stories, like, for instance, a retirement home is now being closed. The residents, some 16 of them, have to find new housing options by April. And then we've heard the stories where seniors are being told they've got a 90-day notice of a 14% increase in their, re- in their rent. It does, I think, make it ne- uh, necessary to have this rent control type of conversation. And look, I get it, landlords. I get it. Your carry costs have gone up exponentially. Insurance, mortgages, all the inputs for utilities, understood. But how do we make sure that we hit that sweet spot? What do you think? And it's a little bit inside the world of education. So I guess classes will resume on Munns Grenfell campus today after trying to deal with issues regarding a cyber incident. We had Dr. Ian Sutherland on the program last week. He's the vice president out at the Grenfell site or at the Grenfell campus. Talk about most of the online use is hosted by Munns server at Brightspace. So there will be some ongoing concerns and a lot of unknowns until they get into the classroom today to see how it proceeds. And unlikely we're going to get a whole lot more information as to what was compromised, what might be shared unbeknownst to the folks who had their personal information attacked inside this hack, whether it's ransomware or otherwise, because we still don't know a whole lot about what happened to the healthcare system, the Meditech system. So you want to throw that forward, we can do it. The NDP are in the news talking about the K-12 system. And I'm not exactly sure why we don't hear similar types of comments coming from the governing party, and this is successive governments, is like Jim did. He's talking about money to address things like class size and composition. Class size is one thing. It's all based on a model of formally using how many students versus how many teachers required, attendance and otherwise. But it's the whole composition issue. You know, Trent Langdon at the NLTA and others and professionals working in the K-12 system say that the current structure of what we're calling inclusive education is conceptually sound but fundamentally flawed. So I don't know where you come down on it because it just makes sense to try not to isolate certain groups based on a disability. One, one or the other, you know, whether it be a learning disability, a behavioral issue on the spectrum, uh, deaf or hard of hearing, you know all the rest. But the fact of the matter is nobody's really getting the type of attention and work to be done and individual attention because of the way the classes are composed. And that's not trying to be mean-spirited because I get it. You know, we've seen certain pragmatic moves like recreating a new school or a new classroom for the deaf, which is down on East Point Elementary here in the city of St. John's. Of course, that would only impact deaf and hard-of-hearing children right here in this area. But the composition issue, I know, is pretty tricky, but it's an important one. Let's talk a little bit of wildlife. A couple of good calls on the last week, and I know this will be of interest to many. And there's a story out there, a fellow named Lee Tremblis. And I've heard and seen Lee's name around over the years. And he's talking about the fact there are no moose in Moose Management Area uh, 29 on the Bonavista Peninsula. He says, if you're thinking about applying there, don't waste your time. So hunters are taking longer and spending more money to try to get their moose. And, you know, the government is trying to tell us that there is a huge big population of moose on the island. Let's see here. I had it right in front of me a second ago. 120,000 animals. That's not what I'm hearing from moose hunters. You know, of course, some are absolutely getting their their moose on the first day or two. But talk about success rates. And this is from a CBC story that's been written many times, but I copied it again this morning. 2008 success numbers, 74%. 2010, 72.5%. 2012, 69%. 2014, 64%. 2016, 61.3%. 2019, 59%. And for the 21-22 season, 57.5%. And a caveat. Worth mentioning, he says, that it's not a typo. 
2021 success rate for MMAs 35 and 33 that St. John's Salmonier was 32.5%. So what are you seeing as a moose hunter? Because if the government says there's 120,000 animals, but we're hearing in variety of the moose management areas that people are having a harder time to get their animal, then maybe, just maybe, there's something more up to it. And they talk about other complications. And there's one great quote in the story that says, but you got to get out of your truck if you want to get your moose. Then they talk about cell phones and spotters on the road and then electronic callers, many of those enemies of the moose population. But anyway, he won't take it on. And had a call last week, which I think spurred on, I want to say, a couple of dozen emails in short order. And it was a caller about uh, snaring rabbits. Okay, I admit it to the caller, and it's true, I have never snared a rabbit. But when the standards changed and they moved away from stainless steel wire and now the implication of 22-gauge brass wire and the old six-strand pitcher cord, apparently folks are out in the bush are seeing dead rabbits that have been in a snare and or rabbits running around a snare wrapped around their neck because they're just so easily breaking away from the snare. So I don't know what you see, but it's certainly as a snarer, if you want to bring what you're seeing in the bush to the uh, conversation, let's doing exactly that today. Because if the snare is not able to keep the rabbit so that hopefully you check your snares on a frequent basis, and I think there's many people included in this conversation that said there's something a little bit dubious about snaring a rabbit in their opinion i've never done it and nor have i ever been involved in it so i have no expertise or lived experience on that front but you never know what's going to pique the interest of the listener and consequential caller but that one call on the rabbit snares where buddy was really i think passionately opposed to what he sees in the bush if the snare is not working then we're just hurting harming and killing animals that maybe never ever get picked up by the person who set the snare in the first place so you want to do it let's do it and, of course, there's got to be some very quick work and finalization of the new price-setting formula well before the snow crab season. We've had many conversations about this because everyone saw the implications of the six-week tie-up. It was problematic. So between the union and the Association for Seafood Producers and, yes, the province, that formula has got to be hammered out here pretty soon. Likely, it's just going to be a firm understanding of the percentage of the market value afforded to either side, the harvester and or the processor, but that's got to come ASAP very quickly. So, and now there are four. Four candidates running in the pending by-election coming up on Monday, the 29th of January in the riding, or the district, pardon me, of Conception Bay, East Belle Island. You know the candidates. Tina Neri, who we spoke with last week, she's the PC candidate. Uh, Fred Hutton, who's the Liberal candidate, and Kimberly Churchill, who's running for the NDP. And Daryl Harding, former president of the District Association down in Conception Bay, East Belle Island, former councillor in Portugal Cove, St. Phillips. He will be running as an independent. Miss Churchill kicked off her campaign officially over the weekend. And... I don't know who the favorite is, and I mean, might be people in the Cove are much more familiar with Miss Churchill because of the work that her and her husband have done advocating for their son Carter, or Tina Neri as a member of council, or Daryl Harding as a member of the council, and or of course, people will know Fred Hutton. I don't know who the favorite is going into this, and it's not really the purpose of the conversation, but it might feel... You know, even though it's been a 20-year stronghold for the PCs, based on some of the comments from Miss Churchill yesterday, I don't want to put words in her mouth, of course not. But she said, you know, it's one thing to tell the story, another to live the story or to be the story, which absolutely she was with her husband Todd and her son Carter. And I guess that's a reference directed at the liberal candidate, I suppose. But anyway, you want to talk about that by-election? Let's go. We're on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Email address is openline at VOCM.com. When we come back, let's kick off the show in fine fashion with your call. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. It's been this morning on line number four. Wilson, you're on the air. Uh, good morning, Patty. Morning. 
it's great to be able to talk to you. Thank you. Happy to have you on the show. What's on your mind? I uh, had an incident the weekend uh, concerning the parking ban that was in effect. And uh, I'm totally disgusted and upset about it because I knew nothing about the the 24-hour parking ban they put in effect on Friday. And uh, I can't remember the last time I got a ticket. And I went out Saturday night at 6.15 to my girlfriend's house to watch the hockey game. 6.18, someone put a ticket on my truck because of the because of the ban. And, uh, of course, when the hockey game was over at 9.30 and I went out, the ticket was on the truck. I was, I was totally surprised with it. And because uh, if I had known, I would have, pulled in her driveway I, uh, you know the streets were all plowed and there was no problem to park in front of her house and uh, so when I got in the truck and looked at the ticket I called City Hall to ask him about it and at first the lady said well that's that's not their that's uh, they're not connected with that or I'm that's not the place I should call. It's that's a provincial thing. She said you had to call the number that's on the ticket. And uh, so I said to her, Well, why did I get the ticket? She said, Because there's a twenty four hour parking ban. And uh, so I said, Well, was it advertised? I didn't hear anything about it. I usually when there's something on the go you'll hear it on DOCM or now, I did hear it on this station, and I just happened to see it uh, because I had a quick scroll on social media to see that they put a 24-hour parking ban in place, which, of course, is just to try to clean up the snow as best possible without having to duck and dodge around people's vehicles parked out in the street. So I don't know what type of effort was made to broadcast it out there. I happened to hear it. But in addition to that, I don't know how they can say it's a provincial responsibility. As far as I know, the city of St. John's imposed the 24-hour parking ban, not the provincial government. Apparently, the ticket is not the city. It's yeah, but the reason you got the ticket is because of anyway. the city. Yeah, I know exactly. Yeah, so that's but uh, yeah, and if they had been clown and everything, I, I, I would totally accept it. Like, but the, it, it was already plowed. It was plowed the day before, and no, it was no plowed went through there. Uh, you know, it's just. Uh, in my eyes, it was a money grab, you know, for the weekend. You know, uh, it's—I uh, totally understand when we have a snowstorm, you can't park on the street. Plows have to go through, but once they plow the street and it's done, I mean, to me, it, uh, you know, uh, it don't seem right to me. Now I know I'm going to end up having to pay the ticket. How much is it? Seventy-five bucks. Seventy-five bucks. Yeah. Yeah. And I wonder how many other people got that ticket the weekend that knew nothing about it. The lady said it was advertised on their city website. I mean, I get notifications for garbage from the city, but I've never, I've never uh, subscribed to, to. I've never been on the city website. So, but anyway, I just 
that's been bothering me since Saturday night I got it. You know, I, I accept responsibility. I don't know that I had to pay it. That's it. Yep. But uh, I'd like to know how much money they collected the weekend or how many tickets they gave out. And I'd say they did pretty well. I don't know if sure. I don't know if we can get a breakdown at this point from the city, but I'll see if I can find out. The worst one for me, and I was the victim of this one, is during the course of the winter parking ban on street parking. I fell asleep on the couch, and as a matter of fact, watching a hockey game, and my truck stayed out overnight, and there wasn't a. a Fleck of snow anywhere to be seen. No plows out, no salty, no nothing, and I got the ticket anyway. I know the ban is in place with a bit of common sense. Wouldn't hurt, I don't think. Uh, Wilson, I appreciate the time. Too bad about the 75 bucks. Uh, thanks, Patty, for listening. You're welcome. Take care of yourself. All right. Okay, bye-bye. Yeah, I get that ticket, but, you know, when they're not plowing to get a ticket, it's just kind of, ugh. All right, bye. Let's go to line number one. Second one's the PC member elected in and serving the folks of Bonavista. That's Craig Party. Good morning, Craig. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty, and thank you very much for taking my call. Happy to do it. Before I get to the um, the driver's medicals, I just wanted to give credence to uh, Lee Tremlett's article, and you referenced in your um, your preamble about the lack of moose on the Bonavista Peninsula. I recall when we played when I played with the Bonavista Cabots, I would drive between uh, Catalina and Lethbridge at least twice a week, because we practice twice a week. Um, there there were very few mornings that uh, you wouldn't see a moose. And now, since I've got elected in 2019, living at the upper part of the peninsula and driving to Bonavista with a great frequency, it is very rare that I would see a moose driving back and forth. That's not a scientific study, Patty, but it's just an observation. And, and all my time on that road, uh, the moose are quite rare. And I think that would mean something. Yeah, and I mean, some uh, moose management areas might see real solid population moose. And people can't, sure. you know, getting the moose on their first day. But that doesn't mean it's the same thing everywhere. And Lee Tremblett, who was quoted in the story, is talking about just how different it is now compared to years past. Because he's been hunting for quite a long time. So that's why I put it out there. I didn't set foot in that particular MMA over the course of the moose hunting season, which of course concluded at uh, the 31st of December. So, you know, sometimes some of those types of issues will pique the interest of listeners and maybe they'll want to be a caller, talk about moose and rabbit snares and, you know, the fish fish price setting panel, all those types of things. But we can talk about whatever anyone wants to talk about. Right. And he's a seasoned hunter. And the only thing being, I can only attest from 2019 to current, and that's a significant amount of time. And then we know they're migratory, but for not seeing uh, any in that length of time, then that does speak volumes. Patty, I wanted to talk about the driver's medicals. Um, the district of Bonavista begins in George's Brook Milton and stretches down to Bonavista. Uh, the lower part of the peninsula, about 8,000 patients, residents are served by the, the Bonavista Hospital. Uh, we've secured now staffing for the emergency room, but we have very few family physicians. Uh, those that work the emergency room uh, also have a client base, but again, due to work in the emergency room, they have very little. The the provincial government uh, motor vehicle registration will have a three-month time frame for seniors' medicals. And we know that, you know, once you hit 75, then that's when it begins, and uh, when you're past 80 years of age, every two years. We've got uh, a significant and a serious demand for these to be completed by orphaned patients who do not have a family physician in the district of Bonavista. 
So two things that would happen. One is that we've got a high stress level, knowing that there's a limited time frame that uh, they need to get their driver's medical completed, and that's the high stress on behalf of the seniors. The other one is the load on an already um, overworked and overloaded ER in Bonavista because they don't have any choice but to go to the ER. If they were to make an appointment for the um, the nurse practitioners in Bonavista, the two the two of them there that work out in community health, then uh, it's a three to four month waiting period. And again the government gives between two to three months. Three months is what they would say, but I know that I've had seniors pass me their uh, their letters and it came down to a little over two months they would require it. So uh, I had asked and presented a petition in the House of Assembly, and that petition was on the, uh, was the last day, November the, the 16th, in the House of Assembly, asking government to extend the time frame for these um, these drivers' medicals. Uh, but to date, I'm not aware of any extension. So I thought that would give it ample time, and then at least to call in to Evit public now, and hopefully we can see that extension. And Petty, there's, there's a perfect storm in all of this. I, I, I would say that when we look at the seniors having to do their driver's medical. Um, there's an examination report that the doctors or, or the, the, uh, the physician or medical practitioner would have to fill out. Uh, if you haven't seen that patient before and you're seeing them in an emergency room and they come in once and you've got to see them and you've got no background on the individual, then that puts them in a very precarious spot. The validity of completing that report, I would think, by many standards, would be say that would be questionable. On the other hand, what some do is that they would check off and say, well, um, is a second medical uh, opinion required? Because that's an option on the report. So they would have the senior go to another one, which hopefully in that case would have been their, their family physician for who would be in the best position, but in the absence of anybody providing the continuity of care for these six to 7,000 orphan patients, then they're going to see another um, intern or um, practitioner that had no background on them. It's really not something that belongs in the emergency room. Just 100% is not. There's a worry about an extension, though. I mean, I get your concern because if people are unable to just completely can't get an appointment, then what do they do? But, of course, for someone who might indeed see a doctor say maybe it's time to hang up the license, an extension might make that a potentially dangerous situation for an individual and other motorists. You know, someone brought this to my attention there uh, just before we went on Christmas break, saying maybe, just maybe, there's an opportunity, you know, for once a month to have a day where it's nothing but these types of issues dealt with yes. at some of the family doctor clinics or collaborative care clinics, whatever the case may be, because you do not need an MD to complete it, as far as I know. A, a nurse practitioner can absolutely do it. So I thought that was a reasonable idea. You know, if that hits the uh, the deadline or the extension that you're asking for, or if it can hit the government's current targets, so be it. But you know, I think there's a conversation we had about an extension. What do you think? Oh, I agree 100%. And remember now, every region, like we just said, Lee Trimlet in um, MMA 29 is, is just, we're talking about one region. 
uh, it'd be nice to bring it outside of the ER and, and have some kind of capacity or someone in place to be able to do these driver's medicals in regions where the data would suggest that it's, it's significant. And I would say that I would be in one of those districts here in the district of Bonavista. So, yes, take it out of the emergency room. And one thing I want to mention, uh, we've got to make sure we got it right. And we know that it's not an easy, it's not, you, it's not a matter of, of a 10 minutes going in, Patty. It can't be. And I'm no medical practitioner. But it's got to take more than 10 to 15 minutes, and it's got to take uh, um, knowing the individual in many cases. Some may be blatantly obvious, but in many cases, you need to understand. This is a language factor. There's a rich dialect. There's a lot of things when you have a doctor that's coming in and not aware of the area. So that's a problem. But then they'll send them for they can. Another option would be to send them for a driver's test examination. Right. We've got, we've got many seniors in Bonavista who have been driving in Bonavista for years and, and opt. They don't go to the TransCanada. They probably stay out of Clarenville in a lot of cases because they just drive in their, in their comfort level down in Bonavista. But if the box is checked where they got to go for a driver's examination, they can't get that in Bonavista now. They always did. And as long as I can ever recall, but since the pandemic, they haven't reinstated it. They used to always send the driver examiner down to Bonavis to do the road test in that area uh, to serve the population. Now they have to go to Clarenville. And when they do to Clarenville, well, they'll do their, their regular route in Clarenville, which includes the TransCanada, many of which the seniors haven't been on TransCanada for years and have no desire to go on to TransCanada. So when we look at the system, what we've currently got here, there's a few things that need to be seen to and looked into to make it fair, safe on the roads, number one, and number two, to make sure that we treat the seniors fairly as well in the process. And I just, I just wanted to throw that out. And, I, and the answer would be take it out of the emergency rooms in the absence of, uh, of the lack of family physicians in the district of Monta Vista and do have some capacity where they have certain days where someone would go complete these. And how they do it with their – they got access to their medical background and so on, but maybe somebody in the local area. Fair enough. Uh, did you want to get to water infrastructure very quickly because I'm late for the break? Yes, just 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 quickly. I, I uh, when I think about the water infrastructure and, and these uh, communities in the district of Bonavista trying to make headway, uh, two that jump to mind would be Newman's Cove, uh, George's Brook, Milton. It's not an easy task because what they had to do is they have to create the finances to be able to uh, apply uh, for uh, new water infrastructure monies. From the, from the government. But at the same time, they have a system which is, uh, you know, in disrepair, leaks, and is very costly to maintain. Trying to get to that point where you've got a new system is a long journey. I use my own, where I live in George's Brook Milton, and I think they've done commendable work in George's Brook Milton because uh, when I was involved with the local council on LSD, I know that collectively we'd often run out of water and we'd have Milton without water for, um, well, for days. There was times we went beyond three days. We never run out of water now, but we'll often hear people say that the quality of the water is not as good as what it is, but that is the process that we're going through. Got to get the infrastructure done in the ground, and then you get to that uh, place where you have an enhanced filtration. We have a very rudimentary filtration now where water is pulled from a a pond, uh, a brook, where it passes through a porous screen. 
that is the only filtration that would come in, say, Newman's Cove and George's Brook Milton. But that is the final phases. So I think sometimes it takes time. We are making good progress, but it is financially and it's taxing uh, because it can't happen overnight because of the finances. Patty, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate yours. Thanks, Craig. Okay, bye. Bye-bye. Uh, Craig Party, PC member for Bonavista. Before the break, let's get Joey on four. Joey, you're on the air. Hello, Patty. Good morning. Uh, I just wanted to talk about, quickly, uh, parking. Parking in the winter and, yeah, you know, getting tickets, getting towed, things like this. Uh, I've heard you say that you lived in Quebec at one point. Did you live in Montreal at any point? No, I didn't. My son lived in Quebec City going to university at Laval, so I've been there many, many times over the course of those couple of years. But, no, I have not lived in the province of Quebec. Okay, anyway, well, my I guess my perspective is just coming from someone who's lived, uh, I'm back home now in Newfoundland, but I lived up in Montreal for a number of years, and they had uh, what I thought was a really good system to let you know that snow clearing was happening, and it was just simply orange, little pieces of paper, orange signs with, you know, like a little stick on them. They just stuck them all on the snow banks on every street, and they did, you know, but just like here, one side a day. And, yeah, I thought it worked really well. So I just uh, – I'm really impressed with the sidewalk clearing now, how it is. It's gotten a lot better than it used to be, but I just wanted to put that out there. I just really love that system because then there's no mistake, you know. You just you – you see these orange signs everywhere, and you know you got to move that day. Yeah, they do want to put up some temporary signs in different areas where you, for instance, where they're going to bring the snowblowers in, right? So, and that is yeah. absolutely helpful because not everybody subscribes to the city of St. John's for notifications or is all day long scrolling social media to see what yeah. might be in place for clearing or bans or the like. But as a listener points out, pardon me? Especially seniors as well. There's a lot that don't use the internet and are full yeah. and stuff. And, I mean, sometimes I want to take a break from it. So I might not see it unless I'm, you know, turn on the radio or someone tells me. But you can indeed sign up with the City of St. John's for notifications, including snow clearing, garbage collection, and a variety of other issues. So that's available for folks who maybe got caught unaware this past weekend. You can subscribe, and it's pretty easy, and it just flows right into your phone or into your PC or your laptop. Uh, Joey, appreciate the time. I've seen the videos of snow clearing, and I've seen it live. Quebec City, where yeah, here comes the to... here comes the plow, then goes the sidewalk machine, here comes the blower, here comes the truck. I mean, it's all very carefully orchestrated. Now it costs, yeah. but everything it comes with the cost. With the tow trucks, and they've got the horns. It's yeah. like in the, in the, the missile silo right before it goes off, you know? <laughs> it gets you out of bed for sure. But anyway, thanks for the time, Patty. Thanks, Joey. Day. All the best. Take care. Bye-bye. Yeah, some of it is just like watching a choreographed play or dance. Uh, okay, let's get to the break. When we come back, Eric Bennett's with the Intervale Associates Incorporated. We're going to talk about conservation. Particularly, he wants to talk about the Pine Martin and maybe talk about some of the snare wire issues. And Gwen has a son in HMP. She's worried about his health. Don't go away. Start your day off right. Get the latest updates on news, traffic, and weather conditions. Plus, interviews with today's newsmakers. Your go-to source before you get on the go. 5.30 to 9 a.m. weekdays. Your VOCM mornings. Welcome back to the program. Just very quickly in the form of a friendly reminder. I'm not really sure what people want me to say to some of these things, but, for instance, if there's something you want to talk about, Just because I didn't bring it up doesn't mean it's not up for discussion, debate, or conversation. Like already this morning, how come I'm not talking about whatever went on in some sort of protest in lower Manhattan yesterday? I don't know. 
if you want to talk about it, let's talk about it. And yes, there's massive protests uh, taking place in Germany today based on the German farmers. Clean fuels uh, regulations and some of the tax subsidies that have gone by the wayside. So look, if I don't bring it up, doesn't mean we don't want to talk about it. And yes, it's getting a little bit tiresome. The same people with this bleating the same stuff all the time. You know, not a peep in Canadian media about the German protest. Look, there's not a... Uh, I didn't say anything about a variety of things uh, that are ongoing in this world today. Whether it be protests taking place here in this country or German protests or Gaza or Yemen or Libya or many countries in Africa, the turmoil that we're seeing all over the, uh, the planet. So, again, if you want to talk about it, just talk about it. Let's go to line number two. Say good morning to Eric Bennett. He's with Intervale Associates Incorporated. That's uh, line two. Eric, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How's everything going? Best kind, I suppose. I should be talking more about the German farmers, but so be it. <laughs> yeah, that's true too. Right? But uh, yeah, sorry I couldn't hop on there last week. I'm uh, getting over the flu there now, and my voice is finally starting to get back to me. Uh, <laughs> hopefully, it only lasts through this year. But uh, from my understanding, you guys had a couple questions there last week in regards to snare wire and the new plan mark and stuff like that there. So I thought I'd pop on today and answer any that I can, if possible. Sure. Let's talk about the uh, the pine martin to begin with. There was uh, very few number of years ago. I've read some stories since someone brought up the pine martin issue about that. Looks like there's positive signs insofar as recovery goes. There's basically five areas in the province where you might see a, a pine martin. What are we seeing on the ground? On the ground, that's that's very true. Uh, so, yeah, so now the, the population is actually doing really good now. Uh, as we know, back in uh, 2007, there was estimated between 300 to 600 on the on the island, which it did go up since 1995. Then it got down, so it got down to threaten. And then uh, back in 2019, there was another estimate done, and uh, they were thinking there was around 2,400 to 2,700 on the island. And uh, so it's always good signs when you're seeing a, a number jump that there, that high over the years. And then uh, go back in uh, to, to a 2022, actually the federally on Coastal got downlisted to special concern. So that's always uh, that's always a plus. Uh, with the new plan, Martin is one of those great success stories. Shows uh, a lot of people in within conservation and steward, doing stewardship and doing their uh, doing their uh, doing it on their end to help this population get back to where it's to today. So, uh, and especially with the trappers and the snares in Newfoundland, like if it wasn't for them and people following best practices, the population may not be as good as it is there now. So, help us understand exactly what happened to see the rebound in the population of the American pine martin or the Newfoundland pine martin. So, was it simply because snaring practices weren't being adhered to, or was there a change in their natural predators? Because, you know, a big rebound like that is significant, and it takes a variety of different components to lead to those numbers increasing. So, can you walk us through why you think? we are in the, tra- uh, the trajectory we are? Uh, yeah, I definitely can. Like I'm saying earlier, like uh, uh, to the person I was talking to before this year, uh, it, like the wildlife division definitely got all the all the correct answers, but I'll try my best at it. But uh, I really, like me personally, I really do think it's just to help with uh, a lot of the education, the outreach going out. And like uh, I know with us at Interville Associates, since uh, since I started with the with the company and then before 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 me too, we did a lot of education, outreach to different schools straight across the province. Uh, we would go to any type of meeting that was either involved with stewardship, we would have it out there. Uh, talking to the trappers, to trappers uh, courses when they were putting them off, or even at their AGMs about the uh, Martin Hairstag program, stuff like that. But I really do think it's to, I think it's to, to do with the the use of the 22 gauge brass wire, people following best practices, and also trappers out in, when they're out in the field when they're trapping for mink using the floating mink boxes, which uh, would help with any accidental captures of Martin. How do we strike a balance here? Because people are talking about, well, okay, moving to this 22-gauge brass wire is working for trying to protect the pine martin population, but we're hearing from people out there snaring rabbits that is simply not strong enough to hold the rabbit. So what do we do? 
Now, that's one thing with the, with the, with the brass wire, and uh, I see I see where they're all coming from. You know, back before I started my career in the sport here, I was I was one of them. I was out there using the you know using the brands that you get at uh, at your local retail stores, like the big the bigger names. And uh, I be honest with you, a couple of my snare used to break too, and they're sounding worse. And you get you're on a, you're on a frosty morning, you know, and you see you get your first snare and it's broke. But uh, there is different brands out there. Like some of the brands that's been sold at these big retail stores, it's uh, it's more or less like a, it's almost like a craft material onto it. Like either the tensile strength's not there, it's not 100% brass onto it. But lately, like over the past couple of years, when I've been staring and and I've been working uh, working closely with the Trapper Association too, like getting them this wire. It's called the the Corfill Brass Wire. And uh, as of lately, like the past two years, you couldn't I couldn't find anywhere on the island to get it. But now, thankfully, uh, Blue Ridge got got the, got a, supply, have a nice supply back in too. And with this wire here, it's been tested too to uh, um, like with maintaining your snowshoe hair and release of Martin. And you're you're retaining over 75 percent of your snowshare when you do set it. Now, like with all wire. Uh, with brass wire, you can't treat it like a stainless steel. Like uh, you get like the younger the younger generation coming up, who uh, like they like say my generation, uh, when it was just coming off of using stainless steel going into the brass wire. So for a while, I was setting mine like just, like stainless steel wire, tying it on as tight as I can to the tree, hoping that it won't break. And then just with brass wire, you can't do that because it's, it's a different type of wire altogether. But uh, with this core fill wire, so it's tending to work a lot better. And a lot of the trappers swear by it. Like, everybody wants to use it. I've gotten contacts from enforcement and central because we do get, when we do our education and outreach, we do try to buy a supply of wire to give out to people who wants to try it. So say, for example, when I used to go into the schools and gamble with um, with Max Pike's, uh, with Max Pike's class and then also go out with his, uh, with his, uh, outdoor, with his outdoor group, uh, they liked it too, and I would give everybody a roll of wire to try it, and hopefully that they would like it, and they would bring it to their parents to try too, and get them to change their attitude towards the brass wire and which ones to use. So I was wondering with the core wire, it works out really good, and I'm yet to have any complaints about it yet. Well, one or two, yes, but other than that, there, it's, it's hoping, I'm hoping, it's hopeful anyway, that this wire is being really superior to compared to other brands. Can you give me the and name of that wire again? Because inevitably someone's going to send me an email asking for it. It's the Corfil brass wire. Corfil. Uh, all right, that's and pretty you, cool. And you get that Blue Ridge, or you can also buy it online too. Okay. Uh, and I think it's I think it's from Nova Scotia, a retailer in Nova Scotia sells it. But there's one thing too, like then you do get some people like yes, some of them did break. It's like I was saying, it's a seventy-five percent plus. You retain your snowshoe hair. But then what trappers are starting to do now too, they're trying a little string onto it and putting it onto the tree too, which will help the break of anything bigger. Fair enough. Would that uh, brass wire that people are having a problem with, would that six-strand pitcher cord be a better option? As opposed, you know, And, of course, people should consider the uh, recommendation you just made. Yeah, so with the six-strand pitcher cord, uh, a lot of people still use that there, too. But, like, I try, I'm no good at setting it. Every time I set, the, every time I set that snare, it always falls over on me. So I do, from talking to trappers, and I do talk to a lot with over the year, and snarers, the, a lot of people like to use the six-strand pitcher beta cord. Uh, pitcher cord, uh, braided pitcher cord, and they said it do work better than the brass wire too. Is just when it's set right, but now people find it hard setting, so a lot of people that's why they stick to the brass wire. What's the difficulty in setting the pitcher cord? Uh, I just find it more, it's more flimsy when I try to set it. Okay, it's not, it's not as stiff as the, the brass wire. Fair enough. Very informative stuff, Erica. You want to tell us anything else about what's going on at, at uh, Intervale Associates? Oh yes, for sure. Uh, one of the other things we do, because although the the Martin population is downlisted to special concern, like on Coast Week federally, uh, we still want to know like where the Martins to in Newfoundland. Like we know where it's to, like in regards to the Bay Saint George area, the Maine River watershed, uh, Terranova National Park, and Grossmore National Park. So we do know the Martins are there. Are there. So we want to like we're going outside the box now. Like we want to go to areas where they may not be. Because even if uh, even if like say for example we get a hair sample that's not a Martin, there's still good data too. Cause at least know they're not in the area. 
But now we're starting to see with the new flam art, and they're starting to adapt with the different, uh, like, say, for example, to uh, what they're traditionally into, like Old Forest, Growth Forest, and stuff like that. So they're starting to adapt to it. So we're seeing Martin now in the Vaver Peninsula, heading further east. We had uh, we had one, uh, one mo- the saddle came back that's most likely a Martin out by Chapel Arm area. So the, the population is dispersed, like, dispensing race right across the province. But what we do is called the Martin Hair Stag Program. It's uh, it's a, it's free. It's it's a volunteer program. It's completely free. We supply all the material to the point where we even bring you the material if need be to your doorstep if you can't meet us anywhere else. And all it is, you go in the woods while you're out, say you're out walking, you're out setting your stairs, or you're on your trap line, and it's three boards that that, that we build and basically you nail it to a tree. You bait it with uh, with sardines or whatever whatever Martin likes likes to eat. We find sardines is the best, but I did that some good luck with some leftover Thanksgiving turkey. Uh, and then you also use some stunkler, which would attract the Martin into it. So the skunk will attract Martin into the into the hair snag. And then once it gets to the hair snag, well, it's like a normal Newfoundlander. Once you smell a free meal, you're going for that free meal. So you'll climb up the tree, put his head into the hair snag, and you'll have a he'll have a good meal of sardines or whatever food's there. And all they leave is a little hair sample. So there's no there's no damage being done to the Martin. That hair sample is then shipped off to the Wildlife Division in Cornerbrook, and then it's sent off for DNA analysis. So we know what Martin it is. And then from the DNA analysis, we can tell if it's a new Martin on the island or if it's a recapture from one that was previously got. Fascinating stuff, Eric. I really appreciate you making time and continued recovery from your flu or your cold. No, oh, yeah, thank you very much. I really, I really appreciate your time coming on talking to you. Thanks, Eric. Uh, stay in touch. Yeah, you too. Have All a right, great day. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Go to an inform- informative chat there. Okay, let's take a break. Gwen, appreciate your patience. She wants to talk about her son who's currently at uh, HMP and not feeling well. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Well, Gwen, she's going to stay right there throughout the news, and we'll get to her after that. I don't want to shortchange her on her topic here this morning. But another news story that is getting a lot of attention on the mainland in particular, I don't know what the level of concern will be here in this province, but given the fact that the American Food and Drug Administration uh, organization has given permission to the state of Florida to import drugs from Canada, prescription drugs. So there was an interview over the weekend where the health minister of British Columbia, uh, Adrian Dix, said that this potential drug shortage issue is going to be caused by this. It seems to be a bit of a reckless decision in the first place. So, of course, in the news story, there's a distinct focus given to the drug Ozempic. We know that it's designed to treat diabetes, but of course it's become an uber popular weight loss drug. People are even calling it about the, the Hollywood jab because so many prescriptions that are going out the door for Ozempic are not for treating diabetes, they're to help people lose weight. Now, of course, losing weight can certainly be good for your overall health, which is why doctors are, you know, not thinking that it's unethical to prescribe a drug for one issue that is not designed for and the reliance that so many diabetics have on Ozempic. So that issue, well, of course, it's going to save the state of Florida some estimated $150 million a year. And the federal government of this country absolutely has the ultimate controls in place. It's one thing for the FDA to give the state of Florida permission, quite another for us to allow it to actually take place. So that conversation is absolutely happening. And we've seen some pretty significant drug shortages in this country over the last number of years. And hopefully this decision made south of the border doesn't further exacerbate that in this country. All right, final check on the Twitter before the news for VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Email address, openline at VOCM.com. But my fave, of course, when you join us live, like Gwen Perry, who's in the queue on line number three. Then there's a story we talked about last week <clears throat> about a wrongful conviction in the province of New Brunswick. Two St. John men spent 40 years in prison for a murder they did not commit. Witnesses testified, later recanted, admitted they lied on the stand. And so two fellas have now walked free. There's a local connection to this as well. Ron Dalton, who was wrongfully convicted himself, 
who actually served time with these guys. He's the uh, co-chair of Innocence Canada. And, of course, Jerome Kennedy, one of the Innocence Canada attorneys as well. So we'll have that chat and then speak to you right after this. Don't go away. Stay informed and have your say on the news of the day with your VOCM. Join Linda Swain weekday afternoons from 4 to 5 p.m. for an hour of talk and discussion with decision makers and listeners like you. News talk on your VOCM. Uh, welcome back to the show. So we're keeping an eye on what's happening out on the uh, just on the TCH west of Long Harbor. Pretty serious collision between a transport truck and a bus that was carrying some uh, workers. It wasn't a school bus. So there's extensive amount of fuel that's been spilt on the highway. Traffic is really stalled in that area. So if you can avoid, please do exactly that. And we'll keep an eye through the newsroom as to keep you updated when we get more information. Let's go to line number three. Good morning, Gwen. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you this morning? I'm doing okay, thank you. How about you? I'm... Frustrated. I uh, I've been trying to get some help from my son James Perry, who's incarcerated at the HMP. My son suffers from severe Crohn's disease, fistula Crohn's disease, which is not very good. He's been diagnosed with that since he was 14 years old. So I lived with it with him when he was with me. He's right now 37 years old. He's a non-violent individual with a history of addiction-related crimes. I've uh, been to hospital twice in the last few months, probably a little bit more than that. I'm not even sure how many times he's been there, but two that I'm quite aware of. Due to complications arising from his Crohn's disease, despite these hospitalizations, he has not received the necessary ongoing medical care and attention that his condition demands. He was recently returned to H&P as an exacerbated situation, with his bowels now being in a critical state. He was in such a bad state over the weekend that one of the guards, I gotta, I gotta say nothing good or nothing bad about the guards. They are awesome in there. Uh, I think one of the guards was really, really concerned with my son, and he made sure that he got to the hospital in time. Thank God for that. His surgery was addressed, and they did open up his bowel and clean up the mess that was in there. The mess of his bowel, a lot of it is due to HMP. It's not a safe, it's not a clean environment for anybody, especially someone who's suffering from diseases like my son. And I'm sure there's more in there besides my son who's suffering with uh, chronic illnesses and whatnot. I visited James on Tuesday of last week. I went there, I finally got a visit to go see him. I'm five hours away from him, so I'll see him and saw him. And uh, he pulled up his shirt and showed me all the open lesions on his body which probably are from bites of mice or rats because the place is infested, as you well know. I'm sure I'm not the only one who's addressed this issue as I've been on the news and watching and listening to VOCM in the last little while. So I'm really, really concerned about my son if he got to go back there. Right now he's at the hospital in health science. If he got to go back to HMP, this is only going to escalate and James is going to end up with a lot more complications than he's already got. His mental illness right now is really bad because the Crohn's disease causes a lot of stress and this affects the bowel tremendously. I've done a lot of research on Crohn's, especially since my son has been diagnosed since he was only 14. On note of that, addiction being a disease as well, I've done a lot of research on that too in the last few years, knowing that my son is an addict to crack cocaine and other substances. I've wrote letters to Minister Osborne and Minister Hogan pleading for help, but nothing is happening. I'm tirelessly advocating for his health and well-being. 
but my efforts have been in vain. Given the nature of my son's situation, I firmly believe that he should be offered the opportunity to receive appropriate medical care in a hospital setting accompanied by the support he needs to address his addiction issues and transition to rehabilitation. The harsh conditions within this prison environment are not conductive to his recovery and his well-being. I'm reaching out in the hope that someone can intervene and facilitate James transfer to a hospital where he can receive the specialized medical care required for managing his Crohn's disease, as well as the necessary support for addiction treatment. And once completed, hopefully rehab where he belongs. He's asking for rehab. He wants help, but to no avail right now. And this is my how much does how much does he have left in his sentence? How much time? I, I'm not 100 percent sure because court dates have been postponed, postponed, postponed. So every time he goes, something else gets gets come up. And so he hasn't I, been convicted. He's on remand. Well, he's he's in the, the jail waiting for some sentences. I know he's got some time already served and more time to serve. I'm not 100% sure of the legal part of all what's going on with my son, but right now I'm concerned about his medical issues. Of course you are. So what type of medical care is available to him while he's inside the walls of the penitentiary? Nothing. Nothing. The only thing that's there is I spoke to his nurse practitioner there last week, and James uh, wasn't after having a bowel movement for two weeks, going on three by the time he got to the science yesterday. Or, sorry, on Friday he was admitted, and Saturday... Was it, no, Sunday morning they did the surgery. Saturday he was admitted. Um, while he was there, his bowel was packed tight. I was talking to the nurse practitioner at HMP, which he told me that there was medication su- uh, supplied for him for his bowel movements. That didn't work. There's a lot of things that you can't give Crohn's patients, like stool softeners and this kind of stuff, usually don't work. They need other medical attention, especially my son. He's got fistula Crohn's, which is abscesses on the the Crohn's down in the lower part of the bowel and the rectum area, which was what was happening to James. He couldn't use the bathroom because of all the infection there from the fistula. So what they did yesterday was they opened it up and drained it out, and now he's on IV antibiotics. The skin uh, lesions on his body, I don't know where they're coming from, but it looks to me like bite marks from when he pulled up his shirt and I saw him on Tuesday. So, You know, and one more time. So I asked about uh, access to medical care and talking about rehabilitation and trying to get some help with his uh, substance abuse and addiction-related issues. Is there any programming available to him inside the walls of the penitentiary regarding his addiction? Well, not that... James has applied for many programs since he's been in there. Everything that has become available to him, he's applied for it, but he's not getting it. They're short-staffed. There's nobody there offering the right kind of uh, treatments for medical or for mental health. So it's hard to say, like, I'm not in there. I can only go by. I don't get to talk to James a lot. The phone system is another issue in there. So he told me last night that he's applied for so many things and nothing's happened. Uh, He was heartbroken last night and... He's just so frustrated with the whole system. I mean, my son is not a hardened criminal. Is He's in there because a drug-related addiction problem, which, to me, is not a place for someone like that. Like, he needs to be where he can get uh, rehabilitation and even medical attention. They don't even get to go outside. Like, 
a Crohn's person, any person needs vitamin D. You don't even get that. So I don't know. Like his diet has been pretty good since he's been in there. They don't give him like they usually keep him on a good diet for eating as most of the time. But then you got to put in requests for that every so often. So then while they're waiting for the request, you're getting just the other old stuff, which you know it's not good for the bowels. I don't know. I'm just. Uh, I wrote letters to. Minister Osborne, with the help of the Guardians of Recovery, they've been helping me with this situation, and I've talked. I'm on a lot of groups that's that's helping me with all the situations that's going on. But my question now is, what happens if James goes back to HMP? That place is uh, is infested. It's uh, bacterial infections going on there, skin infections, because it's not a clean environment. No, it's certainly not. And you're a worried mother. I get it. So with his addiction, he committed crimes like to steal money, to get money to fuel his addiction. Is that? Yes. Okay. Gwen, anything else you'd like to say this morning? I'm just going to hop back to a couple months ago when James uh, was really sick and he was in the hospital and he did go to detox. He went to detox. I wrote a letter uh, for this too as well. Uh, He went to detox twice with the hopes of going straight to rehab, which there was no rehab available. So when there's no rehab available, what do they do? They go back out and they commit crimes for their drugs again. And this is what happened to James. If there was a rehab available when he was in detox, this probably, and these crimes would not have been committed. And I wrote a letter addressing that as well. So where do we turn? What do we do? I'm not the only mother in this situation. I'm not the only parent in this situation. But my concern now is James's medical condition and going back to H&P after having this surgery. What happens? Are they going to be looking after him in there? Like, I don't know how long they're going to keep him in hospital. He's got to have packings uh, uh, changed every so often right now. I'm hoping they're going to keep him there until he gets at least healed up a little bit. But to go back to H&P, it's only going to cause more, more infections, more trouble with his Crohn's disease. I'm sorry to hear your troubles, Gwen, as the mom, and there's a lot to dissect inside this conversation regarding access to medical care, access to treatment for your addictions, and a variety of other programs. That absolutely should be part of it, because rehabilitation has got to be part of the incarcerated uh, population. It's not just punishment. I know people want their their pound of flesh, and they you know think that it's got to be as punishing as possible, but the unfortunate reality is it's not helping anybody, because in the era of public safety, if we don't have rehabilitation as included uh, on top of punishment, especially inside Her Majesty's Penitentiary, the oldest penitentiary, and I would imagine the most deplorable one in the entire country, what happens? They get out. They're no better than when they went in, if not worse. And what happens then? Well, that's my biggest fear. When my son comes out, is he going to be better off for this? No, definitely not, because he's not getting any rehabilitation in prison, none whatsoever. And this is what he needs. He needs rehab, and he needs he needs medical care for his uh, chronic illness that he's got like going back to H&P is just I'm just scared something terrible is going to happen and he was just by luck got this surgery done yesterday because if not the infection would have spread through his body and even gone this morning I appreciate the time Gwen I wish you well thank you so much for having having me on Patty my pleasure take good care all right bye 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 You know, we can talk about individual cases of one prisoner or another, but the overall conversation, I think, is pretty clear. You know, on top of the fact that there's somewhere in the neighborhood, 60% of the people at Her Majesty's Penitentiary are on remand. The conditions, I get get the same comments coming from the same people all the time when we talk about anything prison-related. 
you know, it's not supposed to be the Ritz Carlton. No one is suggesting it should be the Ritz Carlton with a luxurious duvet and all the amenities associated with staying in five star hotels. That's not it. It's the fact of the matter is that it is simply not fit for man or beast inside the walls. It's unsafe for the correctional officers. And obviously when we've heard with the shortage of staff and the inability to get outside and you can't have a visit with your loved ones, what do you think is going to happen? We're going to have a very tenuous, dangerous situation that's going to be on the verge every day, day in and day out, of getting even worse and even less safe. Let's take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk about the wrongful conviction story out in the province of New Brunswick. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Colin, you're on the air. Good morning, Mr. Daly. How are you this morning? Doing okay, thanks. How are you doing? Pretty good, thanks. I wanted to talk about the uh, story out of New Brunswick last week. Two men who were eventually acquitted of second-degree murder for a 1983 killing in Fredericton. Yeah, Robert Mailman and Walter Gillespie. Yeah, it's... Um, it just leaves me shaking my head. It's just, uh, these are two more people who've been wrongly convicted of murder, who spent uh, decades behind bars, eventually got paroled, uh, and were up until last week, had to go around their communities, uh, paroled murderers, uh, with the stigma of a criminal record for murder, uh, on their record for uh that they, in fact, uh, did not commit. It just uh, boggles my mind that these cases are still taking place and uh, in the 21st century now, and, and we, we still have uh, people calling for uh, capital punishment in this country. Uh, polls that I've looked at over the last couple of years, there's still a majority of Canadians who would support capital punishment, and uh, it just leaves me shaking my head. It boggles my mind that, that, that people would be... Uh, supporting this uh, uh, this measure in our justice system, you know? Well, you know, inside this particular case, there's always, given the fact that it's human beings involved in the legal system, there's always the possibility of a wrongful conviction. But in this case, non-disclosure of key evidence, uh, the recantation of two of the key Crown witnesses who admitted they lied on the stand, they had no earthly idea, and there was actually alibis for the boys to be nowhere near the crime scene itself. So this, I mean, uh, I think if you listen to the folks at Innocence Canada, they're talk about a variety of cases that really need to be reviewed uh, in that particular province, given what they say are some systemic issues inside the Crown Prosecutor's Office. So when you have witnesses that lied and non-disclosure of important evidence, then this is, of course, not just a an unfortunate issue, it's a purposeful issue. Uh, absolutely. Uh, it's, it's very serious when there's evidence that's withheld, uh, either by the police or the Crown, and they're, they're not forthcoming with the defense. It's, the defense has a uh, an, an accused person in this country has a constitutional right to make full answer in defense to a criminal charge, and the Supreme Court of Canada has ruled in a, a very famous 1991 case that the Crown has a uh, not only a, a duty to disclose evidence but a continuing duty as evidence comes in and and you know as the case moves forward to disclose all relevant evidence to the defense, whether they intend to call that evidence at, tr at trial or not. You know we don't have trial by ambush in this country. One of these witnesses, uh, I'm reading a story here from CTV News, Atlantic, that uh, one of these witnesses was uh, was paid for their testimony, and that wasn't disclosed to the jury. I would think that would be very uh, germane for a jury to hear that of type course. of uh, evidence. Obviously, it goes to motivation, right? Mm -hmm. you're, you're, a, you're a paid uh, witness. 
You're not here voluntarily, you know, to, uh, to to see that justice is done. You're not there to to further the court process, to act as a as a as a an honest uh, justice system participant. You're a hired gun. You're being paid to speak. So you know that would be very pertinent, in my opinion, for a defense lawyer to be able to raise that and cross-examine that person on their. Uh, and they're uh, they're being paid for their testimony and their motivation for being paid, and call into uh, question their credibility, right? Well, I mean, it's pretty standard practice too. If one of the associates of the alleged has been given a plea deal, that's always examined while the uh, the person was on the stand. So it should be the exact same case if you're paid for your testimony, because whether you got accommodated financially for one reason or another, or you were straight up paid to say what you're saying, there's lots for lawyers to dig into on that front. It's a terrible well, story. There's no doubt about it. I think they spent what 18 years in prison. Yeah, something like that. Okay. Yeah, and now but both of these men are in their late 70s, early 80s, and one of them is terminally ill. And uh, I, I think if there's going to be any compensation, a monetary compensation, financial compensation for uh, for these two gentlemen, it has to come very quick. It has to be on an expedited basis, you know? Yeah, and unlikely that'll happen. Uh, now that I think back, I think one served 18 years, one served 21 years, I think is the case. Yeah. Uh, I appreciate the time, Colin. It's a real messy story. Yeah, and just finally, Patty, just uh, with, with this, uh, just real quick. It's, um, you know, I, I look back at this province, three men wrongly convicted of murder, and uh, two of those men eventually, Mr. Parsons and Mr. Dalton, were eventually acquitted of their murder charges. And the late Mr. Drugan, uh, he had his criminal conviction overturned by the Court of Appeal, and a new trial was ordered for him. Uh, he should have been acquitted of that charge. The Crown stayed the proceedings against him for one year. The charge was hanging over his head for one year. The Crown was of the opinion that it was not in the public interest to prosecute him. Or that it uh, it didn't feel the need to prosecute him, or didn't have a reasonable prospect of a conviction. I think after somebody goes through uh, almost a decade behind bars, like Mr. Drukin did, uh, and he got a conviction overturned, and the, and the court of appeal, the highest court in the province, orders a retrial, that should go back immediately to a retrial. And if the crown's not prepared to uh, bring a case forward, as was the case with these two gentlemen in New Brunswick last week, uh, the case goes back to, uh, on the court docket in the Supreme Court. Uh, when it comes time for him to be arraigned on the charge, he enters a not guilty plea, and the Crown uh, informs the court that it will not call any evidence, and a directive verdict of acquittal uh, will be acquitted. Uh, sorry, a directive verdict of acquittal will be entered on the charge, and you get an acquittal. You get the constitutional protection of double jeopardy. You can't be retried for that offence. Unlike the state of proceedings, after one year, that's the uh, if the charge is not brought back, the charge expires, but the charge can be relayed in the future. So there's no double jeopardy attaches to a state of proceedings. Right, it's just letting the clock run out and it never runs out. Uh, Colin, appreciate the time. Thanks for the call. Thanks. Take care. Bye-bye. All right, let's keep rolling here. Let's go to line number three. Eliza, you're on the air. Oh, hi. Elise, actually. Oh, Elise. Oh, pardon me. Welcome to the show. No worries. Thank you. Thank you. How are you? I'm doing okay. Thanks for asking. How about yourself? Good. I'm great. I'm just calling to talk a little bit about uh, my two friends who are actually featured in your newscast, Marilyn and Miran. They're two uh, young women who came here from Gaza uh, via Turkey because they came as human rights defenders under a special visa program that the Canadian government offers. And they're working really hard to bring their brothers here from Gaza. Um, And we are supporting them in that endeavor. And we've started a GoFundMe campaign. Their brothers, um, Fahed and Talal, are 20 and 21 years old. 
and they're um, currently all alone. They've had to leave their whole family in the north of Gaza and flee to the south. The rest of their family wasn't able to make the journey on foot. Um, they just, you know, it was extremely dangerous. And so Fahed and Talal are sheltering right now in Rafa. They've kind of gone back and forth between Khan Yunus and Rafa, depending on where the bombardment was most intense and where they could find shelter. And they're living in a tent in Rafa, like so many other people are. Um, Rafa is a town of about 200,000 people, you know, maybe a little more than the population of St. John's, but very condensed. Um, and there's 1.5 million people sheltering there now. So we're working really hard to bring them here. We're trying to bring them here through the special visa program that was announced by the Canadian government on the 22nd of December, I think. Um, it's pretty short notice to put everything together. And the visa program is like, it, it's quite strict, actually. They're only accepting a 1,000 applications for the visa program. Um, and it opens on Tuesday, tomorrow morning. We're not really sure what time it opens. Uh, there's an online portal that's been notoriously unreliable in the past when there's been previous kind of these sort of special visa programs. The portal has been really unreliable. Uh, the last time they used it, I think it was for a temporary worker program. It crashed within two hours of opening and then couldn't couldn't reopen again. So, you know, this is extremely serious. Like, there is ongoing bombardment and sniper attacks and drone attacks happening within Gaza. Um, and not only that, there's, um, you know, rampant uh, disease outbreaks because of the lack of clean drinking water, because Israel's cut off so much electricity, there's no food, so people are dealing with issues of hunger and starvation. So, you know, we we feel really strongly that the visa program um, is an important step, but really needs to be expanded. You know, one of the things that um, we're really concerned about is that it's, it's um, a year difference, basically, from when Canada announced the emergency measures for Ukrainian refugees or Ukrainian um, people coming to Canada. And at that time, you know, any Ukrainian could apply to come to Canada. They didn't have to have any connections to the country at all. They didn't have to have family here. I mean, there was no limit on the number of people who are allowed in. Um, and, you know, two weeks of funding for accommodations were available. Whereas, you know, not too much longer later, we have these emergency measures for Gazans. There's a limit of a thousand applications. It's only for people who have extended family in Canada. And that would be like siblings, parents, grandparents, not any further extended than that. And there's no financial aid, but rather a requirement to demonstrate that you can financially support the people when they arrive. So there's just a real double standard um, in what's happening. And, you know, in the case of what's happening in Gaza, like there are far more people be, have been murdered in a far shorter period of time. And then you have disease outbreaks and a sea ongoing siege that's been ongoing for 17 years and, and uh, deepened and extended now. So we just really want to advocate for people to um, to, to call your MP, to write to the government, to ask them to make changes to this program, to make it more equitable. And we also would love people to donate to our fundraiser for Maryland and Iran. And how can they donate to the fundraiser? Um, we have a GoFundMe, and you can connect to that through our Instagram account. Um, if you just go on Instagram and look up Palestine Solidarity Action NL, you should be able to connect to it through there. Um, I think the fundraiser has also been shared on the Palestine Solidarity St. John's Facebook page. Um, and uh, we also have a link tree, which 
is linktree dash palestine underscore solidarity underscore action underscore nl um, so those are some of the ways you can access the GoFundMe. I appreciate the time this morning. It's a, there's a lot of convoluted silos for immigration and refugees uh, applications these days, and the backlog is extraordinary. So one thing for the federal government to set targets, whether it be from anywhere on the face of the earth, including Gaza and or Ukraine, but backlogs for visas, backlogs, and some of the confusion with even trying to get out of the country you're trying to get out of is yeah. a complicating factor. I, I appreciate this, Elise. Good luck. Yeah, well, you know, just to go, one more quick, quick thing, Patty, just to go along with that, you know, um, the visa applications and the right to leave Gaza and come to Canada, even if the Canadian government gives permission, goes through Israel, which is kind of an unfair process, you know, that's not the way that it is in any other case with any other um, uh, group that has to kind of apply through the people committing genocide against them. So it's a little bit of a, you know, one of the things we'd also like um, the government of Canada to advocate for is that Israel shouldn't have a role in deciding whose family members are allowed to leave, that that should be the decision of, you know, if the Canadian government wants people to come here, then we should be, no one else should be making that decision. I appreciate your time. Good luck, Elise. Thank you. You're welcome. Take care. All right, bye-bye. Uh, let's take a break. Rob's in the queue to talk about snow clearing. Junior wants to chime in on the issue regarding rabbit snaring, and then Verna's up a Labrador to talk about healthcare issue. Don't go away. Your voice in Newfoundland and Labrador's biggest conversation. If you want to know what's happening in your province, tune in to Open Line every day. Have your say weekday morning starting at 9 a.m. on Open Line with Patty Daly on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go line number four. Rob, you're on the air. Top of the Monday morning to you, Patty. The same to you. Thanks for the call. What's on your mind? Yeah, um, no, I'm... Talking about snow clearing and stuff like that, and you know the drivers driving around with you know a foot of snow on the top of the cars is just absolutely brutal. You know, like take your time, and you know all they do is put the wipers on, and then they got a little visibility, and that's it. And it's just so dangerous and everything like that. But it's it's more so the snow clearing um, out here in CBS. You know, and out, out through Holyrood and stuff like that. Everybody's got their quads with their little, you know, plow on it and everything like that. And they're plowing it across the road into an empty lot and stuff like that. But they're leaving, like, windrows. They don't they don't clean it up. They just plow it through, and there's windrows going through four, five, six at a time, you know, just for, for one driveway. And it shouldn't be allowed. Like, if, I don't understand. Like, clear your snow. But clean it up. So, what are they doing as they plow it across the road? They're leaving a, leaving a couple of uh, rows of snow on up uh, either side of the plow. Is that what you're saying? Yes. Okay. Yes. You know, and 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 that shouldn't be allowed because when you're coming through, like you know, I, I guess they're they're planning on the plows to come through or something like that to to clean it up or whatever. But it, it shouldn't be allowed because it's a danger too. Like if you're coming through. And you hit one of these windrows or something like that, and who knows what's in there. You could have a piece of concrete or something like that or pavement or whatever, and it's going to send you off into the ditch. You know, uh, it shouldn't be allowed. Like, unless you're cleaning it up, it's fine. But, um, you know, the councils should uh, have uh, people going out, and as this happens, and, and if they leave the big windrows like that, you know, go in and talk to them and you know 
tell them, clean it up. Well, there's rules about shoveling into the roadways. Anyway, this would be the exact same thing. Just uh, just so happens it comes on the tail end of a plow. So, look, there's a person very close by where I live, and he is famous for throwing the snow out into the street. I mean, I just don't understand it. He's at it all the time. It's not my business to stop and do anything about it, but he is relentless. Every single time there's any uh, snow to clear, and he actually uses a snowblower, and he's not flicking it up on his lawn. He's flicking it out on the road. I, I just don't get it, to be honest with you. Some people just don't have any regard for anyone else but themselves, I suppose. See, and that's wrong, and there, and there should be a fine involved. Absolutely. Stuff like that. I'm no, sure his um, neighbors have called the city on him many, many times. I don't know if anything's actually been done about it, but I'm sure people have, you know, told the city what he's doing. You know, and it's just, and, and like I said, snow clearing off your vehicles and stuff like that, like, it's not nothing new to anybody here. There's you know, laws about clearing off the, the snow off your vehicle, too. Uh there was this, you know, there was one instance coming back to the Outer Ring Road one day. It was, you know, after the show, maybe around 12.30 lunchtime. And it's not about speeding or anything else, but there was a sheet of ice and snow came off the uh, top of the car in front of me. And it wasn't a pickup where it's really, you know, fairly difficult task to clean off the roof of your vehicle, but a big sheet and a good size one, too. The entire top of that car came right at me, scared me half to death. I almost went off the road. So, yeah, clearing the vehicle yeah, off no, is important. And I, and I see that every day here, you know, like, you know, you know, the storm was, you know, Saturday, like everything should be cleared off and everything like that. But like you said, like I, I, I own a truck and I have to, you know, clean off the top of my truck because I don't want no stuff going off to the back to somebody else. But the people are just so, so wrong. So moronic is what I call it. Yeah, well, <laughs> we see it all the time, right? It, the, you know, clear enough just to have a little porthole on your windshield so you can see where you're going. Both side windows absolutely covered in snow, so it's pretty wild stuff. Uh, anything else quickly, Rob, before I say goodbye? Yeah, no, no, that was just it for, for today, Patty. I appreciate the time. Okay, thanks. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. All right, uh, let's go to line number six. Take good morning to the Mayor of Carbonair. That's Frank Butt. Mayor Butt, you're on the air. Happy New Year, Patty, and uh, thank you for taking my call. Happy New Year to you. Welcome to the program. So we had a caller from your area, I guess it was last week, talk about the mini temporary dump that had been set up. We know that it's now been cleaned up, but what led to that uh, secondary site? Well, Patty, I'm not, not quite sure what went on there. That was uh, something to do with the contractors and, and the, uh, I guess, the pickup uh, the garbage that they picked up, it didn't really affect the town of Carabineer. It uh, affected in the sense that Carabineer provides uh, fire protection to that area. So that's how we were involved with that. So uh, they say it's all cleaned up, which is great. Uh, and our concern was that if it did catch a fire, it could smolder for days. And, uh, of course, uh, a lot of the uh, residents down there have well and septic. If we ever put water on that, then there's some uh, potential of contamination of their water supply. And inside the world of garbage collection, maybe some days like here in the city when it's really windy, we can't put the black bins out. It might be interruptions based on weather, but we understand there were some interruptions in garbage collection in your community over the weekend. What's going on? Yeah, well, it's been on the go for a while now. Uh, you know, there's several reasons for this. And uh, on behalf of council, certainly I, I apologize to the residents for their frustration in, in not getting their garbage picked up, bringing it out to the curb, having to bring it back in again. So we, we apologize on, uh, for that, and we were taking steps to make sure that uh, it doesn't happen again. Uh, there are several issues for this. Uh, we, as you know, we're, we're contracted with the Eastern Regional Service Board, and then they subbed out their contract to another company. Uh, 
this other company, I think, would have probably have uh, HR issues, health welfare issues, and mechanical issues with their with their vehicles. So, all of that played together and came in, in together. I mean, it's been on the go for a while, but then it sort of came in with the Christmas season, more garbage than that, and then this is where we are today. But right now, I think, uh, Patty, I would say it's about 85% of the garbage is picked up, uh, less on the recyclables. That needs to be addressed as well. Well, so what is the status of recycling pickup in your community? Do you have curbside well, recycling? Uh, you put it out every second week, and, and we certainly encourage the residents to do that because uh, apart from the environmental part of it, uh, benefits, uh, is financially is, is better. It's $25 approximately for a ton of uh, recyclables as opposed to approximately $100 for garbage. So we certainly would encourage people to recycle as much as they possibly can. That way, it'll keep the cost down for the town and the residents. Yeah, it comes with long-term savings, as has been pointed out here in the city of St. John's as well. Are you folks on the the transparent garbage bag program like we are? Yes, we are. It, it phased in on the 1st of July, but the 1st uh, of January. But there is a, a, a grace period there of probably three or four weeks. So, uh, you know, just uh, just enough time to get people used to what's going on there. But, I mean, if you put out your black garbage bags in, within the next month, you certainly will get it picked up. But after, I'd say, four weeks, we'll probably be going back straight into uh, clear garbage bags and one black privacy bag. In the world of regional waste management, uh, did your community ever have its own dump, landfill? Yeah, years ago, uh, down towards Freshwater, uh, down on, on the uh, Blueberry grounds, and that there was uh, our own town had our own little uh, dump down there, TP dump, I think they called it. They, they they incinerated whatever was bought down there. But as we uh, you know we got more environmentally friendly, we moved away from that, and then we went to uh, contracted out to the. Uh, in this case, Eastern Regional Service Board, who takes that garbage and moves it to Rumbler Bay. You know, I'm not exactly sure if the regional waste management is working out the way it was intended. I mean, for instance, you know, you talk about doing things in more environmentally friendly fashion. And, of course, moving away from garbage and incineration is a good idea for every reason imaginable. But we also have garbage being trucked all over the place. And we also have communities that had industrial or commercial landfill sites that have now missed out on some of those tipping fees. That was a big part of their revenue stream. So I think, you know, maybe a good look at how it's working. And it might be working differently here in the east than it is in the west which I think is much more complicated when you talk about all the uh, garbage that's being trucked all over the place. And I mean, I know you have to truck it in from Carbonera, but there's you know, different distances we're talking about and population density on the West Coast. Uh, any thoughts on uh, regional management before we run out of time? Well, yeah, no doubt. We're, like, we, we met with Eastern Region Service Board on last Tuesday, and we just discussed this particular issue with the garbage. And uh, on Saturday, the contractor met with me personally, and uh, he, he apologized for the situation that's going on here now. And then on Tuesday, which is tomorrow, prior to our regular council meeting, we're going to sit down an hour before and just have a little discussion there as to uh, about our partic- this particular issue with the garbage. And from that, we're hoping to make some, uh, you know, some recommendations to council to uh, see which way we're going to go in the future. Uh, uh, I still believe that there's, you know, there's a value in recycling, and, and if, apart from dollar value, but even the environmental part of it. So yeah, maybe uh, as a as a group of maybe the TBN area could look at it and, and uh, maybe uh, come up with some ideas where where we can, you know, economically and, and safely uh, get rid of our garbage. I appreciate the time this morning, Mayor Buck. Thank you, sir, and ha- again, Happy New Year. Same to you, sir. Stay in touch. Bye-bye. That's Frank Bott. He's the mayor of Carbonair. Let's take a break. Verna, dialysis issues in Labrador, and Junior wants to talk about snaring rabbits. Don't go away. Welcome back. Let's go. Line number two, Junior, you're on the air. Yes. Patty, first-time caller. Welcome to the show. And uh, listen to the guy on there this morning about 
snaring rabbits and uh, pine martens, where they're trying to protect the pine martens. Uh, yeah, I mean, there's, uh, I've been a hunter, I guess, all my life, and snaring rabbits all my life. And for the last few years, I haven't done a lot of it. But prior to that, I I was uh, had some snares out and had a 45 rabbits that I had getting my snares. I got 25 and lost 20. And one day when I when I was on my trail, the wardens pulled up and and asked me out of what kind of luck I was having, and I said, well, I've had 10 rabbits get in this morning, and I've got four and lost six. Now, I know they're probably trying to protect the pine martens, but, <clears throat> I mean, the, he said, and the guy that you had on there this morning said they're increasing, and the reason why is not just because of the sneers. I think a lot of it is because there's not many furriers out there anymore, people trapping things, because there's nothing into trapping anymore, and a lot of people have given it up, and no doubt, that, you know, the pine martens is increasing. I don't think it's all because of sneers. No, I think you're probably right. And, yeah, and, and the other thing was, I mean, we're using this copper wire. We can use it to 022, but we can't use 020. Now, when he was on this morning, to me, he kind of contradicted himself because now he got another copper wire out that seems well older than the, the rabbits. You can catch the rabbits. So if we can't use O22 or O20, I mean, that will save the rabbits. Why did they come up with another one stronger in O20 or O22? Right? What he's saying now, there's a new war that we don't know anything about. Now, I live in central Newfoundland, and as for Point Martin, my family, my father, grandfather, right on back, been furriers all their life, and my brothers, and from this side of Millertown to the east coast in St. John's, I don't know if anybody have ever, ever heard talk of a Point Martin that's snaring home or trapping home. Most of them was in Mellertown. But the old island now is barred from snaring rabbits in a sense. I mean, you're almost wasting your time not to go out and tell those snares that you're telling because you're losing half the rabbits. So, and you know, they should look at the population of the rabbits too. I mean, we're losing our population of the rabbits because they're just getting these snares and people are just losing them and they're going off somewhere and dying. So that is my concern this morning, Patty. I, first time ever I called, but I, when I heard you on there this morning and, and you spoke about this, I mean, I know a lot of people just complaining about the situation with the with the copper war, and uh, I just thought I'd phone in and have my two cent work. I'm glad you did, Junior. And plus, you know, I don't know how you can address it on a regional basis because there's only apparently some five locations where you're likely to see any Pine Martin, regardless of the population rebound at all. Like, do you think it's possible that in places where there are no Pine Martin, that there could be different regulations associated with the type of wire used for a snare, or what do you think we should do? Well, I mean... Like I said, I mean, there's no furriers out there anymore. I mean, trappers is very scarce now. I mean, my brother's used to be at that. I didn't do a whole lot of that. My father spent his life at that. 
My grandfather spent his life at that. And like I said, we don't know nothing about Pine Martins. I mean, my brother been trapping in, in Mullertown, and they do, you know, was trapping in Mullertown, not anymore. I mean, he's uh, up to the age now, he don't do it anymore. And as for Pine Martins, you know, they would probably trap one or two a year when they were trapping, just would get in their, their traps. But, you know, they're very scarce. But as for central Newfoundland and this area, I mean, we do not know nothing about a Pine Martin, just only the air talk of it. I've never talked of one Pine Martin ever uh, caught in a, a snare or the people that's fern in central Newfoundland, and I can go so far, maybe Badger, I don't know, but this side of Badger, and I mean, if you were talking to anybody in central Newfoundland or on the East Coast, you won't hear talking to anybody with a Pine Martin. So we're all kind of barred from uh, snaring rabbits because of those few Pine Martins as one part of our island. Yeah, and of course, if you are someone who wants to snare rabbits and you're losing as many as you're getting, then of course, we're not helping rabbit population. There's, I think, a real conversation we had with whether or not it's even humane to be snaring a rabbit with the chance that the likely chance that it's going to break away and simply die with a snare around its neck somewhere down the trail. Well, I mean, you know yourself. I mean, I had uh, 10 rabbits get in one day and I lost six and got four. Yeah. And, I, and at the same time, I had a few snares out. That's about five, six years ago. And, you know, there's a lot of work in, in town rabbit snares. I build gardens for them, and, you know, you tell four slips like in a garden, and and you go, uh, I had, uh, you know, I, I had 45 rabbits get in, like I told you in the beginning, and I got 25 out of 45. And that's a lot of work on them drain, right? Absolutely. Well, because the, the war is just not on the rabbits. And now when he's saying that, well, we got another war out now that's a better copper war, and he get the name of it to you, I think, there. I mean, but it's contradicting. I mean, if you can't use steel war to hold a rabbit, why would you use a, a copper war that's going to hold them and steel probably old Pine Martin? Because, I mean, if, if, those, if this copper war is better, there's something about it to it's stronger war to hold a rabbit. So, I mean, you know, where's the difference? It's a fair question, one of which I've admitted freely that I don't know much about it because I've never done it. And so no, consequently... but I mean, we're, you know, we're in central Newfoundland and in the town that I live in, I mean, all, we spend our life. I mean, I have a rabbit license. I'm 76 years old. I've had a rabbit license since I was six, 16 years old and a bird license and a trapper's license and whenever I can get a moose license. I mean, we're into this kind of thing. But, I mean, I got a brother there now. I mean, some people still went on and, and, and still, and tell still war, although they wouldn't supposed to, but uh, it kind of fusses right to, like when you realize that you're going out and spend the day and you're going to tell this copper war and in the end of the day, you got, all this work gone and half your rabbit's gone. So, you know, some people says no, I'm not going with it. I'm going to go on and tell my uh, steel war. And in a sense, I don't blame them because, you know, like, we're just not at that just for fun. We're at it to, you know, we're always used to rabbits. We eat rabbits. And, and when we go to 
snare rabbits. We want to get them, not lose them. Of course. Junior, speaking of moose, did you have a license this year? I did. You did? And I had a, this was the first time in my, I'm 76, and the first time in my life I didn't get a moose. Amazing. We're hearing those uh, lack of success stories, and their trend well, since 2008 seems very real. Yes, i done quite a bit of hunting, and I mean, I got a highway license uh, I've had for the last five years uh, between Grand Falls and, and Gander. And that area is, there's a lot, of, uh, there's not a lot of moose. i done quite a bit of walking. I don't use the road on, and, and I, I usually get out in the woods and hunt because I like that, you know, like you don't have, you know, you're not having this one in your way and somebody else. But I guess I walked, I'd say if I had to put together, I walked anywhere on 50 to 100 kilometers in the woods. And I seen five moose and I never got the chance at only a, a couple of them but I didn't get a moose out of it and there's, there's in that area there deers tend out but in the area that I live in is not very far from that which is out around Lewisport you know area 22 we do have more moose but the reason a lot of the reason why people is not so successful anymore uh, the areas growed up, and the moose is protected with the with the low growth, and and you know people just having the job done them. You know the cutovers is getting growed up, and you know the moose is uh, is getting a bit of a break. It's good to have you on the but show, I don't Junior. Think moose is all that scarce, Patty. I I don't. I they all think there's there's quite a few moose around. I mean, but. Just sometimes you, I mean, like I said, I've had a license for this area uh, for nine years. This 22A was in that area, one side of the road, and now since it's got a 101, we've had four licenses, and we've been very lucky getting the moose. But this year, I didn't get one, so I guess we'll have to put that think about all the good years we had and forget about the bad years <laughs> good on you junior appreciate the time as a first time caller hopefully you do it well, again so uh, you know like i just wanted to get that in because i mean i still think that you know we should be if they're making a war that's, that's going to hold the rabbits I, i'm what i'm saying is like the, the steel war we can't use it all because of the point martin that's the only reason why we can't use the steel war but now this guy was on this morning i guess he was from the wildlife or the Whatever, I don't know. It's called from a company called Intervale Associates. They're in the conservation business. Yes. Well, I mean, this war that they're coming up with, I mean, I'm glad he is coming up with another war, but uh, if he's so strong, I mean, if we could use uh, O20 in copper war, they'll hold the rabbits. We're O21 one hole. So what they're coming up with is another war just as strong as O20. They might be just as strong as a steel war. Because he is, a, you know, he's a, you want you to lose many rabbits with steel war. But anyway, Patty, thanks for your time and listen to me. And uh, that's my concern. And I have, and there's a lot of people that got the same concern as I got. And I'm just about finished with it. I don't do a lot of it anymore. And I still be out in the woods quite a bit, but uh, I don't sneer rabbits like I used to. But. And there's not very many, there's not so many snares tailed anymore as there used to be. I mean, a lot of the people, the younger people, is not doing what we guys done. But good. anyway, Patty. Good to have you on, Junior. Time. Appreciate your time. All right.
right. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Uh, very quickly, uh, just out of the corner of my eye before we get to the newscast. So uh, one of the fellows from the province played in the National Hockey League from 1994 to 2006 with the Rangers, Carolina, Vancouver, New Jersey, Montreal, one of the real toughest guys in the league for quite a long time, Darren Langdon. Happy birthday, Langer. Uh, let's take a break for the news. Don't go away. Join Greg Smith weeknights at 5.45 as he chats with local musicians about life, inspiration shows, and new music. Tune into Soundcheck, your backstage pass to the local music scene on your VOCM. And welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number five. Good morning, Verna. You're on the air. Good morning. Um, I'm um, Vera. Vera, not Verna. Oh, pardon me. Vera, welcome to the show. What's on your mind? Uh, I'm Colin. I've been in the hospital ever since last Tuesday. Uh, no, last Thursday. Tuesday was the last day I had my dialysis. And my report came in, and they've been trying to get me into St. John's to get my port repaired. And uh, I can't get no dialysis. I've been, uh, well, it'll be a week tomorrow now since I've had any. And I've been just airlined in the hospital bed. And I can't get to St. John's. I mean, and I'm missing my treatments. Are you in Labrador, Vera? No, I'm in Sanathi uh, Hospital. Okay. And where would you normally be getting your dialysis treatment? In Sanathi. And so why are you unable to get it? Because they can't, uh, my pork came out of my side, and they can't uh, repair it here. It's got to be repaired in St. John's. And I've been trying to get middle back in there ever since last Thursday. And I'm still here lying on the bed. So do you have any timing or schedule that you know about when you're going to get the surgical procedure in St. John's, when you can get back on your normal dialysis? Has anyone told you anything? Uh, well, just a couple minutes ago, but I've been on the well for an hour, so I decided that I But just a couple minutes ago now that I did get news that they're going to take me in as a merge. Well, that's good. And so when's that going to happen? Uh, I'm open within the next couple of hours. Okay, good. So yeah, but I mean, like, you know, it's awful, right? You've been talking to me many times before. I'm the one that was trying to get the dialysis unit in Flowers Cove. Right. Now I know who you are. Yes, Vera. Yes, yes. I'm the, the one, and, like, you know, uh, I've had five ports put in since July. Since July the 12th, I've been in and out the hospital getting ports put in, and they found out and whatever. So, like, you know, to me, it's something not being done. There's not other people who's not having those problems with the courts, right? You know? And it's causing me to uh, lose a lot of my cleanings for my dialysis. And, I mean, if I don't get my dialysis, my life depends on it. Of course. So what's the issue with the port falling out so, so frequently? I don't know if, the, well, I know that there was one that was cut in was too short. And then the other day, it just came out of nowhere, like, you know, so, um, like, I've had two in my chest. And uh, so then they had to go to my groin area because of the simple fact that uh, 
and uh, like I've been uh, dealing with bug cracks and that too. So like there've been blockages and stuff. It's a terrible situation to be in, especially when you can go somewhere and get it done. I mean, it's only like the matter of a ten-minute procedure. Vera, before we before we let you go, and I'm glad to hear that you're going to be uh, uh, helped down in the next couple of hours. But I know you were trying to plead with the provincial government to bring a dialysis unit to your community. If I'm not mistaken, I think you told me there was maybe six people in your community that were on dialysis. Did anything ever come of it? I'm guessing no. Uh, anything? No. I think tomorrow they were supposed to have a meeting at the dialysis unit up in. Um, upstairs and I was supposed to attend that but I don't guess I'll get to attend it because of some effect that I'll, I guess I'll probably be in St. John's Well I'm glad to hear you're going to get the procedure and hopefully you can get back on your normal course of dialysis anything else you want to say this morning Vera? No I just let to put my point out there like you know that it's been long enough that the uh, you know, that uh, I mean, I should have been out of there, you know. It, it sounds like it. There. I'm not a very good whacker, but I could be uh, whacked to St. John's and get <laughs> I appreciate your time here this morning. Good luck. Let me know how recovery goes. Okay, thank you very much, and I appreciate your time. Anytime, Vera. I really want to get this out in the airwaves because, I'm, I mean, uh, I guess it's not only me and the situation or other situations, but they just won't speak out. But I'm one of those that don't mind speaking out. And you're welcome to do it on the show. Appreciate the time. Okay, and thank you very much. You're welcome, Vera. So Take I'm care. Hopefully, the game St. John's this evening. Hope so. Stay in touch, Vera. Okay, thank you. You're welcome. Bye. Bye-bye. All right, before we get to the break, let's go to line number four. Donna, you're on the air. Hi, Patty. Um, just talking about the accident on the w- heading west. Um, w- when you get to Long Harbor exit, you're going to hit, hit a um, Department of Transportation truck who's blocking the road. Um, he has a detour sign directing you down into Long Harbor Chapel Arm, I believe. Yeah. Yeah. When you get down there, they have no de- other detour signs. Nobody knows where to go. Uh, he said the fire department won't put a sign out or a man. The police won't put a sign out or a man, and they don't have any more signs. But you have to travel all the way through all these communities right around to Fairhaven. you got to go right down through Chapel, is this Chapel Cove or Chapel Arm or whatever? Yeah, it's one thing to have a yeah, detour, quite another to have detour signs pointing you in the right direction. Uh, well, I well I did. I left, I got hit, hit the truck. And then I came back, found Transcanada Highway West, and went right back on the highway within like, three minutes. And I hit the accident, actually. I traveled for, whatever, 10 kilometers, and then I came across a big accident. And there was no no stop signs, nobody telling me not to come this way. So I came back, and I spoke to the guys who were there blocking the TCH, and they told me that nobody is there, no emergency people are there to put a sign out. So just telling people they have to go into the community, turn right when they leave that ramp by the the Department of Transportation truck and keep going around till you hit Fairhaven, Fairhaven to get back onto the TCH. Pretty helpful information, Donna. And whoever's, whoever's responsible for putting up some signs to tell people where to go during this detour and the slowdown on the highway there west of Long Harbor, please do it. I uh, appreciate the heads up, Donna. I'm sure you helped a couple of motorists this morning. 
Okay, thank you. You're welcome. Take care. Okay. All right. Bye. All right, let's take a break. When we come back, uh, Dr. Todd Young with Main Street Medical and, of course, Medicuro uh, Virtual uh, Medical Services. He's in the queue. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Say good morning to the man behind Medicuro. That's Dr. Todd Young. Dr. Young, you're on the air. Is that pot up, David? Line number two. Dr. Young, you're on the air. You want to pick up the phone, Dave? I'll put him on hold, and you can pick up the phone and see if we can get something going with Dr. Young. So, you know, again, virtual care might not be for everyone in every ailment, but it's absolutely part of the offering inside the world of healthcare. So to talk a bit more about it, let's see if we can't get Dr. Young on too. Dr. Young, you're on the air. Hi, Patrick. Hi there. Welcome to the show. Mm-hmm. So, uh, again, you know, we know that people are indeed availing of virtual care. There's been some ongoing concern about how that contract had been let to Teladoc. Do you know any more about it as to why? I think it was $11 million for Teladoc and about three and a half for your bid. So do we know what happened yet? So just to give you an update on that, we did meet with the, I guess, the key folks uh, that kind of give us some feedback on that. We weren't really satisfied with the feedback we got because it was kind of lacking details. Uh, I'm hoping to get more information, but basically, uh, you know, they thought the proposal wasn't detailed enough. Uh, outside of that, there wasn't really any concrete uh, feedback. Yeah, I mean, inside the world of procurement, it's not necessarily all about the lowest bid is the right bid to win. So do you have a follow-up meeting coming with them so you can get enough information that if and when we go back down the RFP road, you're able to check all the boxes the way they want them checked? Yeah, I think uh, we'll have some further discussions for sure. I mean, if, if the opportunity comes up again, we'll be there. Okay. Let's talk about just how many people are now orphaned patients and trying to do something as fundamental as uh, refill prescriptions. What can you and can't you do virtually? So you can do a lot of things virtually. I mean, uh, whether it's a blood pressure medication or an antidepressant or a pain medication, uh, you know, there are still there are obligations of every prescriber, whether you're a physician, nurse practitioner, or a pharmacist. Uh, you know, the uh, refill is not just as simple as doing a refill. Uh, you know, we need to make sure that they've had blood work done, that they're being monitored, that they're not having any adverse effects. You know, there's some. I'm sure there's lots of you know sort of quicker visits of people have been on their medication for for years um but uh yeah so i mean so basically all prescriptions can be refilled virtually i I think that's a fair thing to say providing that there are certain criteria met when you get into controlled medications so what i mean by controlled medications is uh, narcotics uh general opiates in general of course and um things such as Ritalin or stimulants that are there to treat ADHD and some other uh, other uh, diseases. What specifically do you need in place to be able to refill a narcotic? So the college has said that in order to refill a controlled medication virtually, uh, you need to meet one of several criteria. And one is either you've examined the, you know, examined the patient. So, I mean, it, it sometimes if you have a virtual patient in St. Anthony and I'm in Springdale, and examining the patient may not be realistic. Although, you know what, we've had patients who actually would come and be examined if that was the case. Um, the physician would have an ongoing relationship with the patient. So in Medicuro, we're not set up as we're their primary care provider. We're set up in that we provide almost like a walk-in service. So sometimes that relationship, if we have repeat patients, then we could, uh, 
you know, meet that criteria. The other one then is to have direct communication with another regulated healthcare provider. So, you know, just I'll give you an example of that. Uh, just a, a month or so ago, one of the oncologists contacted me and said, you know, I, I'm prescribing this guy's uh, pain medicine because he can't find anywhere to get it. But really, he said, I don't, I don't really feel comfortable continuing it. Can you take over? So the fact that he contacted me, provided the proper documentation, all those things, and I was able to help that patient. Um, and then the other one would be, you know, just reviewing the medical records. You know, we've, opiates are one of those things, of course, we we know there are increasing rates of chronic pain. We have about 30, 40% of adults in our province who have some form of chronic pain. We know, though, that, you know, addiction is a big issue. Diversion is a big issue. Criminal activity is a big issue with these types of medications. So it's, it's a big balancing act. But as physicians, we are obligated to follow the criteria that's outlined by the college in order to be able to prescribe those. The challenges, of course, is we have increasing orphan patients. So, I mean, it seems like every week I hear of a physician that's kind of closing their practice. And, and so they may have been the physician or nurse practitioner that initiated the control of medication. Um, and then, um, yeah, so because they initiated the medication, then they're not able to do the follow through. And then the patient is kind of left in the wind. And, and that's where there's a big challenge now. We're seeing this more and more with Medicuro. Um, and, and despite, I guess, us doing the best we can uh, working with patients, uh, trying to meet the criteria of the college with each patient, doing it on a case-by-case basis. You know, at the end of the day, this is a systems problem where patients just are no longer attached. And I guess my fear is, you know, as we move towards a further fragmentation of our healthcare system, uh, and including medical documents and how do we access medical records, you know, sometimes uh, it's, it's just really challenging and I, and I see people, too, that are get the sense that they're actually being stigmatized, I guess, because they've been on a medication for a long time for a chronic disease that actually it's because it's an opiate or a narcotic that they're finding it really, really tough to get their prescriptions. When someone is prescribed an opioid for chronic pain or recovery from a, a big surgery or something, is there? I know it's case by case and it's not a one size fits all here. But is there a tried and true practice of trying to help someone wean off the drug as opposed to you no longer get a prescription? Consequently, maybe you are addicted at this point and turn to street drugs or some other substitute for an opioid. So you know, for lower dosages or whatever weaning off a drug means, is that part of how it works? Yeah. So. So, yeah, you're right. I mean, it's, it, there's, there's many different categories to this area of practice. But in general for chronic pain, I mean, there's we call it a, a stepwise ladder approach, uh, you know. And but once somebody is on opiates, so when I see someone who's on opiates for chronic pain, I, I'm thinking, okay, well, you know, uh, the provider before, hopefully they would have tried all those other things before they reached to an opiate. We do always assess, of course, are they on the appropriate dose? Can they decrease the dose? Then we get into short-acting versus long-acting medications, and so there's a lot of decisions that are being made around the, uh, uh, the, the 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 treatment that's that's best for that patient. I guess uh, you know we do have people who build a tolerance. So tolerance wouldn't be the same as addiction, of course. Sure, they would be. You know, so so some patients would have a tolerance. You know, decreasing the dose may not be a, all that a, a good option because it may actually put them into withdrawal. 
um, but yet maybe it is being, being managing their pain. With regards to addiction, okay, we do have patients as well that, you know, maybe they're only taking half their prescription and whatever. So, you know, things such as urine drug screens and things like that are, are part of practice when you're pre- prescribing uh, prescribing opiates. And, and, and the obligation of any prescriber is to, uh, you know, provide safe prescribing and also to provide some monitoring. Now, this is not just physicians, of course. I mean, pharmacists are actually seeing these patients as well, first line, and saying, you know, uh, the pharmacy board has, has uh, allowed them to uh, renew people's opiates for a month, knowing that they are having trouble getting those uh, those refills. Go to Emerge, you won't get your prescriptions in most places if you're on opiates. Go to 811, you don't get them, you know, you go to a walking clinic, you won't get them. So, you know, this whole exclusivity of saying no or refusing patients, that's not really the answer either. And my fear is that, you know, you're going to drive people to the streets. You're going to drive people to uh, making poor decisions that are going to lead to, to further addiction. Let's talk about the so-called, or I don't know if this is the right way to put it, the ethics behind prescribing a drug. Because, you know, it comes to mind when you think about the injectable that is Ozempic. It's designed for treating type 2 diabetes, and yet so many prescriptions are going out the door to help people with their weight loss. How do you evaluate how and when to prescribe those types of drugs? Designed for one thing and relied upon by type 2 diabetes patients across the country, around the world, and yet maybe not being able to get it because someone's using it to lose weight. Uh, yeah, so, I mean, as, as a prescriber, uh, I guess those are the factors that we look into. I guess, you know, there's lots of what we call off-label uses of different medications. So, uh, you know, using it for weight loss will be an off-label indication uh, for Ozempic. Uh, at the same time, um, uh, you're right, the supply has been impacted by that. So... I don't know. It's it's a, it's a bit of a tough one because uh, you know when I look at Ozempic, it seems like everybody is taking Ozempic these days and forgetting the diet, forgetting the exercise, and just being too dependent on on, a, on another medication. But uh, you know, so what you're talking about is the ethics of prescribing, and then just to bring it back to what we were talking about a little bit. So you got Ozempic that basically is being prescribed, overprescribed, and easy to get. And then you've got patients that are having chronic pain and having opiates who, who can't get a prescription. Uh, it, it just seems unethical, doesn't it? It really does, and just from a, a lay person's perspective. I'm just about up to the newscast, but very quickly, we had a call this morning from Craig Priority, the PC member for Bonavista, talking about the number of seniors in particular who need to get medicals done to renew their driver's license. Can that be done uh, virtually? And secondly, I understand you might have a clinic coming up for that specific purpose. So my my answer to that is no, it cannot be done virtually. Okay. There is a there is a part that needs an eye exam. Uh, so uh, you know when I do my cross province uh, addictions clinics, usually uh, the evening before we will offer some drivers medicals because we know it's a bit of a strain in all areas now of, uh, throughout our province. So yeah, on the twenty second, uh, I am doing a clinic in Clarendon, uh, which is I know still a bit of a drive. But uh, if anybody wanted to avail of that, they can uh, just email OHS at MainStreetClinic.ca and we'll book you in from 6 p.m. till 9 p.m. So. I always appreciate the time, Dr. Young. Thanks for doing this.
Yeah, take care of yourself. You too. Bye-bye. It's Dr. Todd Young, Main Street Medical, and of course, Medicuro Virtual Services. Let's take a break. When we come back, the mayor of Victoria, Barry Dooley, is in the queue to talk about water issues. Don't go away. Get lost in the music of legendary artists like Elton John, The Beatles, and more. Join Claudette Barnes every Sunday from 12 to 1 p.m. and relive fond memories through the power of music with Sunday Melodies on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number four. So get more to the mayor of Victoria. That's Barry Dooley. Mayor Dooley, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? Excellent today. Thanks. How about you? Well, first of all, Happy New Year to you and your staff and the listeners. Thanks. The same to you, Barry. And same to you. And uh, I'm just calling this morning, Patty. Uh, we have a situation here in our community this morning that has been happening. It's ongoing since late Saturday night, early Sunday morning, where a lot of our residents are losing or totally or little to no water as you know this uh cold we had caused a situation in our water reservoir where the intake has become blocked with slush and ice now this has happened several times over the last few years so i wanted to reach out to the residents and tell them that we are working on this i know it's very frustrating especially for those who don't have any water whatsoever and i want to throw a kudos out to our fire department who opened up their billing last night to uh help anyone who needed water to drop by and get some containers filled and they also had a delivery service for those who didn't have the means to get to the department they would have uh, driven to their homes and filled up some containers for them so i just want to send out a kudos to them for that last night but uh, the main issue here is trying to get the problem fixed and i you know i'm above all uh questions but I wanted to use your program this morning as an avenue as well to put out a question to anybody who may be in the same situation, other communities, to uh, give us a call at our office, let us know if they have any suggestions or have solved a problem like this before, any engineering companies, any companies within the province who may know a situation that they've resolved this because uh, we're kind of to our wit's end with it. It's happened several times and it's not a good thing when residents have no water whatsoever. Uh, it's frustrating for them, They're especially people with young kids that uh, need to get up in the mornings and get prepared for school, uh, meals alone, just, you know, normal day of daily activity. But uh, here they are, and they're without a service that not only is gone, but, I mean, they're paying for this service, so they expect it. So we're very frustrated as a council to how we can resolve this right now. And unfortunately, I mean, Mother Nature has provided us with a cold spurt on Saturday night. I mean, temperatures dipped down to minus 14 out here, and with the wind chill, it was mid to high 20s. And with the wind, of course, caused the pond to uh, freeze over pretty quickly and caused a lot of slush underneath the top ice, which got taken down into the intake, and we're trying to get it cleared as much as possible. But, you know, when Mother Nature says, oh, this ain't happening, <laughs> it ain't happening, so... You know, I'm, I'm using you as an avenue to see if there's anybody out there that could help us in this situation and uh, apologize to the residents for this service being interrupted, for sure. Mayor Dooley, I mean, this is a pretty fundamental question, but, I mean, water is going to go wherever water wants to go, and that includes pushing the snow and the slush up against the intake. So what's even the process of clearing it? I, I don't know if there's some sort of engineering company out there that maybe developed something to keep the ice, Some I don't know, just throwing it out there, some sort of grinder or something that could be put at the head of the intake where ice gets crushed or whatever before it even enters the intake to a point that it can at least flow through the system. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm open to any avenues, any ideas that somebody out there may have or 
any resolve for sure because you know our residents deserve the services that they're paying for at least yeah because i mean maybe it's just some like extended cone to help divert it away from the intake before it becomes the problem that it is obviously today uh, i appreciate the time this morning mayor dooley anything else you'd like to say no, I appreciate uh, your time on your program, and uh, thank you, sir, very much for letting me uh, get that out there. And uh, hopefully we'll be talking again soon someday. I look forward to it. But, but hopefully it's a more positive. <laughs> here, here, at your convenience, <laughs> Mayor. So, yes, and I just want to let our residents know that our uh, our tax structure as well stayed the same this year, so uh, we have no increases. So I'm just letting the residents know that as well. Well, there's a piece of good news to leave it at today. Well, that's what I'd like to leave it on, a little bit of a good news uh, quote anyways. But uh, hopefully we'll get this resolved as soon as possible. And again, I would apologize to our residents for the inconvenience. It's certainly an inconvenience, but uh, we're working on it, and I assure them that this will be resolved as soon as possible. Appreciate the time. Good luck with it. Thanks again. You're welcome. Bye-bye. You have a good day. You too, sir. That's Barry Dooley. He's the mayor of Victoria. Let's keep rolling. Line number one. Ray, you're on the air. I'm having a good day here. The very same to you, Ray. Welcome to the show. All the best New Year to you and your staff. Thanks. Same to you, uh, sir. What I'm calling about today are coyotes. Okay. There was a woman walked out the door here the other day and got attacked by a coyote. My daughter had her golden lab retrieved for a, a fairly big dog tied on in her backyard a few months ago, and a coyote approached her only before my daughter went out. Uh, who knows what would happen? Mm-hmm. And in the meantime, how are you going to keep moose population if the place is starting to get overrun with coyotes? I don't know what the coyote population would be, though. I remember reading about this some while ago, and they estimate somewhere between 5,500 and 6,000 coyotes around. Which is a lot. And, of course, there's a bounty on the coyote. If you trap or shoot one and uh, uh, turn the carcass in the government, I think they give you $25. Yeah, right on. Uh, but in the meantime, those guys are pretty slick, you know. Oh, yeah. You're, you're not going to walk upon them and just shoot them. No, they're pretty yeah. wily creatures. And pretty cagey animals. Yeah, no doubt sure. about it. I saw one walked along the road one time, and he walked along so unconcerned, and just turned off, went on in the woods, just like I wasn't even around. Uh-huh. So what was the I result of the I attack? Was find the... out, you know, from wildlife or something, what kind of population we have, because when a woman got bit by one, had to go to Carbonier and get shots. Well, you know, it's a little bit much. So the coyote bit her and then just took off, or there was a prolonged attack by the coyote? What happened? Like, I don't know. She came out of uh, uh, her home, and uh, I believe she had a little dog with her. And apparently the coyote attacked her. And they end up taking her to uh, Carbonier, getting a shot. And uh, uh, I guess she still have problems around her eyes. So he must have nabbed her in the face, eh? This would give you a good fright. Oh, yeah, for sure. Uh-huh, they're not fit to be around. <laughs> we got a healthy uh, population of both silver and red foxes around here as well. And right on the river by my place, we got a family of otters. A lot of animals around this place now. Well, we've kind of taken away a lot of their habitat, and consequently they're much more in uh, residential areas more than ever before. Right on. Anyway, I wish you guys all the best for season. 
I appreciate your time. I know. Thanks, Ray. Bye-bye. Yeah, there you go. There's, and, of course, you know, it's things like up on Signal Hill, feeding the foxes and stuff, you know, they're not supposed to be eating timbits and that kind of stuff. And, you know, don't feed the bears. It's that classic refrain that people have heard all of their lives. And, yes, the way that we've kind of dealt with some of the environmental issues, we're pushing some wildlife that isn't normally in around residential areas to exactly there. All right, let's take our final break of the morning. When we come back, Jim wants to talk about an interesting idea regarding cruise ships. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. All right, let's go. Line number two, Jim, you're on the air. Yes, good morning, uh Happy New Year to y'all and all that sort of stuff. Same to you, Jim. Yeah. Uh, last time I talked on this open line, uh, Baz Jameson was uh, the host. <laughs> That's not yesterday. No. Anyways, uh, about these cruise ships, there's all kinds of them uh, for sale over in Europe, just waiting to be scrapped and stuff like that. Eh? And I've been playing with this idea for a while. And uh, why couldn't we convert them into hospitals or stuff like that, eh? Like there's one there I was looking at this morning. Uh, it's got uh, 148 berths, and that's only uh, uh, three mil- uh, I think it's around $3 million. The engines are all that in it. And then there's another one there that's uh, $39 million, and it has 3,000 berths, plus all the accommodations that could be converted into uh, operating rooms, uh, waiting rooms for uh, doctors and all sorts of stuff. Eh? So while you're looking at these cruise ships for sale, have you further gone down the path of whether or not they've ever been converted? Because I know there's all sorts of things like floating hospitals and what have you. So have you heard or read stories about these ships being bought and repurposed for something other than cruising? Uh, yeah, like there's those, those uh, I think there's right now there's six or eight of them down off Africa that are hospital ships cruising around. But what I was thinking of is bringing them over here to Canada uh, and docking them, say, maybe Halifax Harbor. St. John's Harbor now would be too small because the docking space is there, but you could put one out in uh, Holyroot or uh, Carbonier somewhere out there and make it fast, take the engines out of them and sell them, and there's half your money back, uh, and convert them into uh, hospitals or uh, schools with uh, accommodations or even homes for the homeless. I wonder how it would look in a cost analysis as to whether or not it would be cheaper to do what you suggest versus to build a new infrastructure on land. I would have no earthly idea. I'd never given this any thought, period. Neither do I. That's why I'm throwing it out there now to see what, you know. Like, I'm not an expert at this. Uh, I only put in 50 years going to sea, but, you know, in commercial ships. And I was with Marine Atlantic for a while, so I know little bit about the passenger accommodations and what can be done and this and that, eh? Well, there's absolutely the possibility for converting any type of shift, especially like a cruise ship, which would have so many of the amenities required, kitchens and personal individualized berths and big uh, yeah. gathering centers like the restaurants and clubs and things that would be on board. Uh, what were you doing in the 50 years on the water, Jim? Uh, I ended up uh, second mate when I retired, so... Third and second mate with Marine Atlantic. And how long were you with that organization? Uh, I was there, uh, I think, 32 years, something like that. How about that? How's retirement going? Uh, well, I'm still playing around, you know, this and that. And uh, 
it's doing all right. Uh, I have my own little company there. I do some safety training, teach first aid and stuff like that. And, you know, so I'm still busy, and I've worked on the uh, harbor cruises uh, out of the Halifax Harbor there for a couple of years. Okay. And, you know, still volunteer with the Coast Guard and all that sort of stuff. And if you don't mind me asking, what kind of volunteering do you do for the Coast Guard? Uh, Coast Guard Auxiliary. Uh, it's where we take our own private uh, boats and uh, we do search and rescue and all that sort of stuff and uh, whatever comes up, eh? whatever they ask us to do. It's all volunteer and we get our expenses, but as far as our own money go, you know, getting a salary, no, it's not and uh, it's uh, it's a good goal. What kind of boat do you have? I have a 26 foot uh, grew uh, inboard outboard cruiser. Eh? Lovely. Where do you keep that? I keep that in Picto, uh, Picto Marina there in Picto County. I got it. Uh, Jim, appreciate the time. So are you living in Nova Scotia? Yeah, I'm living in Nova Scotia now and that's why I haven't been on listening to you guys for a while. But, you know, I'm just uh, wondering if that would, you know, I so far all the studying and talking I've done seems very positive and, you know, so about that uh, stuff and, uh, you know. Well, I'm so glad. I know you guys got uh, Coast Guard Auxiliary over there in Newfoundland too and they're always looking for uh, volunteers with people with boats and that to, to help and because unfortunately there's it's far too frequent where there's a search at sea and we know we've got a lot from the merciless north atlantic but it's taken a lot as well yeah and uh you know like uh in the summertime now the auxiliary does i think it's around 60 to 70 percent of the search and rescue in nova scotia new brunswick and pei eh? so we free up a lot of boats that They'd have to have about three times as many Coast Guard boats on the go as they have now eh, to do what we help them do. I appreciate your time and the work that you're doing in your retirement, Jim. Good to have you on the show. Thanks for making time from Nova Scotia. Yeah, okay. Thank you. You're welcome. Uh, Bye-bye. And a quick comment coming from a listener based on Jim's suggestion. You know, uh, Aaron says, I'm not sure what problem a cruise ship hospital serves. Seems like the shortage is more medical staff than space. That's true. But if you apply that a further step down the road, for instance, if we're going to replace St. Clair's, it would be an interesting case study in cost and logistics and a variety of other contributing factors, whether it be cheaper to repurpose something, like Jim suggests, versus to build traditional infrastructure on land, as would be very likely what's coming when we talk about replacing St. Clair's, for instance. And of course, the staff at St. Clair's would work in whatever the new facility would be. Let's see here. Let's go to line number three. Randy, you're on the air. Hello, Patty. Hi there. Happy New Year, buddy. Same to you, Randy. Uh, I was at the uh, food bank to get a Christmas hamper. So, uh, do you mind a proof of purchase of how much I'm getting? So, I told them my drug card. I said, no, that's not good enough. I said, I'm not told to sit there making $150,000 a year. And I said, keep the hamper up. So I went down to his garden place. I explained to Paul Davis. Paul Davis gave me vegetables, and he gave me a big turkey. So basically, you were asked for proof of income at the food bank. Yeah. Okay. So it happens sometimes, but of course, if someone presents their uh, provincial drug card, then yeah. of course there's an there's an income threshold to qualify for one, and that absolutely yeah. puts you in space to be potentially needing the food bank. Of course. That's what I told him. And uh, people going there with 
rings on every finger, cell phones up to the ears, gold chains on her neck. But it wouldn't serve me. So what what do they even want for proof of income? They want uh, your pay stub or they want your T4? What were they asking for? Well, it wasn't pay stub. I want my social assistance. So I'll, I'll tell you what. They can keep the food. I want the food. And my friend said she never make a donation to them again. Hey, well, have a good year and God bless. I appreciate the time. Good luck, Randy. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Yeah, I mean, I know it's possible and it does happen where there's the request like that when you present at a food bank. But then, you know, to extend that again one step further is we've heard from food bank operators right around the province that they're not only seeing more people, but they're seeing uh, families who are working coming in looking for services. We know that children represent, what is it, about uh, a third of the new food bank users here in this province. One in four children live in a food insecure household. Then it's all about, you know, for some, there would be even those decisions, sitting at home, cold and hungry, wondering whether or not they even want to show up at a food bank. It does come with some stigma. Of course it does. And people will think like that, like exactly that. So, yes, if there's help required, there's help out there. The strain on the system is enormous, but the folks like the Jody Williams of the world doing everything possible to come up with innovative ways to raise money, to keep the shelves stocked. Then you've got a good program like Sharing the Harvest where hunters are encouraged to share some of their wild catch with the food banks, in particular moose meat, which you hear more and more about all the time. It comes in the form of ground moose meat when you go to get it at the food bank if the food bank nearby you has had a donation from a hunter. So, yeah, you know, when you think about, you know, having to make that decision, do I want to even be seen at a food bank? And please just rub that out of your your psyche because people are struggling right they are people who have never been in a food bank in their life have been donors to food banks who are now clients of food banks it's extraordinary stuff all right final check in on the twitter box uh before we run out of time we're vocm open line you know what to do follow us there so pauline is asking about barbiturates being uh, prescribed virtual care medicure in particular basically dr young if i remember correctly said just about everything can be refilled during a virtual appointment and of course not for every ill or ailment but that's what i thought he said to, in answer to my question and she's talking about barbiturates and she says i said that to her about what i thought todd young said she said not exactly true tried going to medicare for prescription refill they didn't tell me at appointment but one med wasn't fillable they tried putting all on the one prescription after i told them and it couldn't be done that way and bill picked up on a little sly uh, bit of humor here on this monday morning we're talking about the coyote population and i said they were wily Wiley Coyote. All right, checking on the email. It's openlinefocm.com. And of course, my favorite is when you join us live on the program. And we will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning, right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye bye.